This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
morning to you, good day to you, wherever you might be as you're listening to this radio program. This is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan, and it's Monday night, the 27th of February, 2006. Tonight, my guest is Neil Haig. He's an amazing, uh, an amazing artist who lives in Great Britain, and we'll be speaking with Neil uh, live from his home or his studio in, in about... Uh, just an hour or so from now, a little bit less than that, maybe 55 minutes or so. But Neil Haig, really pleased to have him on the air. If you're interested in seeing what Neil does, jump on the web and go over to www.mikehagan.com, mikehagan.com, and you'll see Neil's work and uh, website links pasted all over my front page there, and you can just jump on over to his website at Neil Haig, N-E-I-L, H-A-G-U-E, neilhaig.com, and you can see what Neil's all about and look at some of his work, and he's also a writer and an illustrator of many books. In fact, an illustrator of uh, some books that I've read, actually, an interesting author and somebody who's quite controversial, but his name is David Icke, and uh, uh, Neil has known David for 10 or 12 years or so, I think, and I'm sure that uh, he has some interesting insight into David's work, but he certainly knows a lot about his books because he's illustrated uh, a number of them. So anyway, Neil Haig coming up in just about 52 minutes. All right. So what else? Uh, Yeah, last week it was fun doing the show. Didn't have a guest and sort of uh, a relief of sorts, you know. Uh, There's a little bit of pressure, and it's like, oh, i got to make the phone call, and i got to make all the technology work, and i got to make sure I've read up, and I know what I'm talking about, and I'm, uh, you know, generous and kind and all these things and whatever. Uh, But last week was nice. Just got to sort of lay back and let the phones ring and play some music and talk about stuff. So uh, thanks to those who called in and sent emails, etc., Tonight, as I said, Neil Haig will have uh, music tonight provided by a local Missouri percussion group called Universal Drum Appeal, UDA. And they are uh, fronted by my friend Morgan Matsiga, who is a man who does a show here at KOPN himself on Saturday afternoons at uh, noon, Motherland Jam. And he also does the reggae show uh under a different name uh, his given name if i uh, if i'm correct about it that is uh, rashumba so anyway great music tonight from universal drum appeal one of the uh, other thing i want to say regarding music actually well first of all you can go on the web uh, go to the website at mikehagan.com and uh you can see a little bit about morgan we'll have a song up there for you to uh, or, or for pardon me, from Universal Drum Appeal, there'll be one song up there, I think it's called Harare Beat, uh, that's uh, available for download, but we'll be playing a number of songs uh, from Universal Drum Appeal throughout the night tonight. Last week, however, I played some new stuff from a uh, an artist whose name is Matt Presti, and unfortunately, I actually referred to him as Michael Presti, a couple times I I uh, played uh, two or three of his songs last week and I for whatever reason had a mental block and I thought his name was Michael Presti even though I realized of course that it was Matt and I wanted to uh, clarify that and correct it and we'll make it up to Matt here in a few minutes we'll play a song 
from Matt Presti coming up in just a few minutes, and it's called Shine. I played it last week, but it's one of my favorites, and uh, it's great stuff uh, from a new and upcoming artist. Independent music, of course, uh, tonight with Universal Drum Appeal and always on orbit. Uh, we try to uh, pay attention to the artists that uh, maintain control of their music. All right. Okay, big news uh, for me, actually, and for the show. There is an Internet radio station that has just come online, and it's called Cosmic Waves Radio. And they are now uh, streaming Radio Orbit. They're currently uh, playing some of my archives and have been for the last week or so at about uh, 7 o'clock our time, p.m., and that's at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. But anyway, some great guys over there that I'm getting to know and learning how to do some of this stuff with, but Carrie and Paul, and there's a third unnamed individual that I've yet to meet. But anyway, it's a great deal. It's called Cosmic Waves Radio, and uh, hopefully, this is what I'm planning to do. We won't be able to stream the show from KOPN on Monday nights, this particular show that I do uh, right now on Monday nights. That will not be streamed live. That will always be a, uh, a podcast like it is right now. You'll just be able to download it or stream, uh, stream it from the web. Uh, what I am trying to do, however, is to build a studio, uh, a small studio in my home where I'll be able to add one or two shows a week initially Maybe more down the road. I don't know. We'll see how much uh, information, how much content that we have. As long as I have content, I'll do more shows. Uh, but for now, just uh, in the next month or so, hopefully, start at least one more broadcast a week. But that will be a show that's strictly webcast, and it won't be uh, associated with KOPN. But it will be a broadcast from my home, and it'll be webcast live uh, via Cosmic Waves Radio. And again, that website is www.cosmicwavesradio. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll be doing that pretty soon, hopefully. And uh, right now you can check it on the web over there because they're probably streaming uh, something that we've done in the past uh, tonight. Anyway, it's a good deal. They are directly hooked up to the Amsterdam Loop. It's a big, giant fiber optics loop that runs throughout the country of Holland and the servers are connected through 5,000 megabit connections or something crazy like that and, and there's capable of holding a very large number of listeners at, uh, at real good bit rates. So anyway, great news for the show and for me and I'm real pleased to be moving forward with, uh, with the radio program. So thanks to everybody else who's helped out and 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 given me the um, the impetus to to keep uh, pushing forward with this stuff. Okay, all right. So anyway, like I said uh, tonight, Neil Haig, that's coming up in just about 45 minutes or so, and we'll start things off with some music. As I mentioned, kudos to uh, Matt Presti, and uh, zero kudos to me for messing up his name last week. But uh, regardless, it's a great song. It's called Shine, and this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Shine. 
hidden, deliberately omitted from the first books written. Your mind is now a prison. Are you awake? Don't be the last one to get it. With cosmic equivalent, the soul learns different. Moments where the light is, so why try to fight it? We almost live inside it, so go ahead and write it. Truth becomes a weapon when you start to shine it. There's a war for your soul. Starts in the mind. It's time to jump in before we left behind. Are you lost in the darkness in linear time? Are you a child of the heart or a child of the mind? Duality is just a formality. Everything is one when you shine like the sun. No gravity is ever gonna hold you down. You gotta be lost if you wanna be found. The sun will shine. Would you be as one or would you fall away? Don't be afraid. The chance to make this world a better place. The sun will shine. Darkness will never hold sway. So let go of your Gotta love and be loved. That's the only way I could write one song. You take the whole world. This is what I say to all the boys and girls. You know something's wrong in the world today. Seven deadly sins. Still more on the way. You gotta be strong. Head up to what's wrong. You're the next generation. So save this one nation under God indivisible. With liberty and justice for all. Join me in the song. Sing along. The sun will shine away. We can be as one or we can fall away. I'm not afraid to take the chance to make this world a better place. The sun will shine away. The darkness will never hold sway. So let go of the Got the love and be loved. That's the only way. The truth about the world is the test of the best. You gotta stand up in love or die like a rat. There's only one way to live. Get back what you give. Sometimes you gotta lose before you can win. Unite the heart and mind and let yourself shine. There's a rhythm in the world, so divine, so blind. Wake up and realize what's before your eyes. Go back to sleep, keep living in life. The choice is up to you, so decide what to do. Follow through and don't give up, always be true. Many a fool will come, many a fool will go. Many a man believes in what he never will know. Are you experienced what you believe to be? Stand up, wall, and repeat after me. I got the seeds, gonna plant some trees. Sending a shout out across the seven seas. The sun will shine away. We can be as one, or we can fall away. Don't be afraid to take a chance to make this world a better place. The sun will shine away. The darkness will never hold sway. So let's go up of the love and be loved. That's the only way. Thanks for the nice emails. Some really friendly stuff over the last couple of weeks. I appreciate everyone who takes the time to write. And hello to everybody who listens over the web. The podcasting thing seems to be working out. And I appreciate people letting me know. And um, I'm glad that it's working out and people are taking advantage of it. 
Okay. The on the website, one more time, if you go over to MikeHagan.com and you click on the blog tab, you'll find that it is back up and running. Kudos to Larry, great job getting that up. Uh, we were having a lot of time or, or a lot of trouble, I should say, with spam and all kinds of unwanted junk that was showing up on the blog, and it was very difficult to uh, to avoid it or to preclude these. Uh, little spiders that crawl around and plant these things all over the place from doing it. So anyway, Larry got it figured out, and so the blog and the forum, a new thing actually, are up and running. And there's also going to be a live chat that's actually working right now. And it's just a matter of getting somebody there to talk. (laughs) So anyway, we'll try to increase the presence of all this stuff and create sort of a lively atmosphere over there on the web. So you can go over to MikeHagan.com, click on the blog and uh, the forum there, and you can post a comment if you like. And if there's anyone in the chat room, you can go in there and say hi. All right? And thanks to Larry for getting all that stuff done. It's nice to have it uh, sans spam, if you know what I mean. All right, what else? Um, Oh, I have one other thing I want to mention real fast. Just everybody out there, and this is just a quick thing. I don't do it very often, but it's real important to me. There's a friend. Her name is Mitsuyo. And she's ill, and I just would like to ask all of you, if you could, if you get a nice thought in your heart, to send it out to my friend Mitsuyo, uh, that she might be well. Okay? I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, tonight, as I said, Neil Haig, wonderful artist from the United Kingdom. He'll be coming to us in just about 35 minutes or so. Next week, we've got Richard Souter. If you want to see what he's up to, go over to www.souderzone, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com, souderzone.com. He's one of the leading experts on the planet when it comes to underground facilities, underground bases. It's amazing. Uh, and if you go to this website, you'll just be astonished by what what is uh, what's actually in the public record as far as underground facilities and underground bases that have actually been built, not only in this country, but all around the world. And we'll talk to Richard Souter about uh, some of the details and also what he thinks they're for and uh, why there's an increase in the building of them these days. All right, what else? The week after that, John Major Jenkins will be returning to the program. That's on the 13th of March. John Major Jenkins, we've been talking a lot off the air since he was on the program a couple weeks ago. We have a lot of things that we'd like to bring back up and talk about. There are many things that we didn't cover when he was on the program a couple weeks ago. So really pleased to have John back on the air. That will be on the 13th of March, John Major Jenkins. And again, if you're interested in John's work and you want to catch up, jump on the web, go over to my archives page, and you can listen to the interview that we did with John. Uh, When was it? I guess it was on the... Actually, it was the 6th of February. I think that's when it was. So anyway, he'll be back on the 13th of March. Let's see, who's coming up after John? Michael Sarion, back on the air on the 20th of March. That's going to be a great Equinox show, and we're going to be talking about the Irish origins of civilization. It should be a fascinating conversation with Michael Sarion. That's on March 20th. Uh, Dennis McKenna, my friend, Dr. Dennis McKenna, and Stephen Buhner together. I'm going to interview them in about a week and a half, and unfortunately we're not going to be able to do it live, but I'll record the interview and I'll air that show with Stephen Buhner and Dr. Dennis McKenna on the 
27th of March. Yeah, and after that, I'm not exactly sure. April is pretty full already. Michael Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen is going to be back on the air. We'll be talking about his uh, the latest developments in the dolphin research that's going on in uh, Hawaii and the work and experience that Dr. Heisen had in England recently. Uh, James Kent, an amazing author and uh, speaker and a number of other things, but uh, James has recently released a new book. It's called Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason. And it is an absolute landmark uh, in the field of psychedelic study. It was written, as I said, by James Kent. He is the former editor of Psychedelic Illuminations. He publishes uh, Trip Magazine. If you go on the web at tripzine.com, you can check him out. And uh, this book is an amazing piece of work uh, that literally spans this chasm between science and mysticism and looks at the magic and the science of the psychedelic experience in a way that that a lot of people will be able to relate to, I think, skeptics and believers um, uh, alike. So anyway, James Kent, that'll uh, be coming up sometime in April. I'm really excited to have James on the air. Okay, contact information. Give me a call uh, in the studio here, 573-874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. You can always reach me via email at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, orbitradio at AOL.com. And the website, of course, www.mikehagan.com. That's M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com. All right? Okay, let's uh, play another piece of music here and get things going with our featured musical guest of the night. This is Universal Drum Appeal. And we'll start things off with what else? The Universal Drum Appeal arrival theme. We'll have more from these guys throughout the rest of the program. Stick around. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you. 
All right, there you have it, the arrival theme from Universal Drum Appeal. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll have more from UDA throughout the rest of the program tonight. All right, let's do space weather really quick. Uh, there is an interesting asteroid. I'm not sure if it's an asteroid or not, but on the 22nd of February, there was an asteroid that was uh, designated 2006DQ14, and it flew past Earth. It's about a million miles away, a little bit further than that, but uh, it has a really interesting orbit, this particular asteroid, and we're calling it that because it hasn't really been identified as anything else, but it, it has a, a very similar orbit to the Earth's orbit, and that means that it's possibly an asteroid, but it's also quite possibly a piece of space junk or, oh, something that's from our own planet, something that's left over from a an old satellite launch or who knows what, but there's lots of junk flying around out there in orbit. And sometimes uh, the stuff actually is pretty big and it can show up on uh, telescopes and some of these images that people take of the sky. So at any rate, this thing uh, was last spotted in 1977 or something like that, 1979, or at least that's the last time it was really close to the Earth. And anytime um, you see something like this, you might look at launches that were uh, that occurred during that same time frame. So if you looked at space missions that occurred between 77 and 79, it's a good candidate that something that went up during that time frame uh, may be responsible for what they're seeing now. Now, of course, it could be something else as well. Who knows what it is, but... Anyway, if you want to look at it yourself, uh, 2006DQ14, uh, you can check it out. It's it's about a 19th magnitude. It looks, that's the brightness, if you're not familiar with the, ling- with the lingo here. But anyway, it's about a 19th magnitude brightness right now. And it's in the constellation of Leo. And uh, you can look at it with with a telescope if, you've, if, you've got, if you're sharp enough. And uh, astronomers who are advanced astronomers, even amateurs, though, if they know what they're doing, you should be able to look at it, photograph it, and uh, track it. All right, there's also a comet in the sky right now. Uh, in the morning time, there's a, uh, a comet that's called Comet Pozhmansky. And it was in the southern, it's been in the southern hemisphere, visible in the southern hemisphere for quite some time, for over a month, I think. But now it's up in the north, and for people up here who are interested in comets, you can see comet C2006A1. It'll look like a fuzzy star, pretty bright though, about a fifth magnitude star. Uh, comparable, uh, if you compare that to the 19th magnitude that I mentioned earlier about this, this asteroid or potential asteroid that we talked about, this is much brighter than that. Uh, anyway, it's uh, uh, barely visible uh, to the unaided eye, but an easy target if you've got uh, a backyard telescope or even a good pair of binocs. You just have to know... Uh, uh, what time to look. So get on the web, go over to spaceweather.com or space.com or cyberspaceorbit.com or mikehagan.com and click on the space weather page and you can find out more about all this stuff, okay? There's also uh, one other interesting thing that I'll mention. Uh, I saw some great imagery of a thing that's called zodiacal lights or zodiacal lights. I'm not sure how it's quite pronounced, but uh, zodiacal lights. And it is this phenomenon that happens when the sun uh, goes down and the western glow of the sunset 
it sort of fades away, but there's another glow that replaces it. And this is called the zodiacal lights or the zodiacal lights. And there have been some images taken of that recently from Colorado that I saw. And apparently what this is 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 sunlight that's reflected from dust that's flying around uh, in between the planets, uh, interplanetary dust in the solar system. And uh, this is a phenomenon uh, phenomenon that is best uh, seen in the evenings, uh, in the springtime, and in the morning time, in the fall. So like right now, we're coming up to springtime, March and April, so you'll see it in the evening time. But in the, in the fall, uh, October, that time, you'll see, uh, you'll see it in the morning time. And it's basically the, the, the solar system spins on like this plane, if you picture what they call the galactic plane. Well, there's a lot of dust and uh, debris within that system. And when it peaks over the horizon and gets uh, nearly vertical, you'll get uh, you'll get this reflection. And so uh, it's also great tonight, like nights tonight with, with a new moon. And by the way, it's a new moon tonight in Pisces. And for people who are into astrology, that's sort of a significant thing. Uh, but the new moon tonight, and uh, that means full moon in about 14 days. All right. What else do we have to say about space? Uh, Cassini. February 27th, uh, there's a spacecraft that, uh, for those of you who follow these types of things, has been flying around Saturn and uh, taking pictures. And right now it's doing a flyby uh, of one of Saturn's moons, Titan. And it's a very interesting moon. So uh, people, as I say, who are interested in these things will be interested in that happening today. You can go out on the web and get data on this new Titan uh, Titan flyby that happened today. What else? Um, oh, there's a there's a trajectory maneuver that's going on with one of the Mars recon orbiter, uh, with the Mars recon orbiter, I should say. But other than that, not a whole lot going on in space. The sun is quiet, and we'll leave it at that. Okay, let's play another song from Universal Drum Appeal. I'll get Neil Haig on the phone. And we'll do a few news stories in between now and then, and then we'll talk with him for the next couple hours. Starting at midnight straight up, we'll talk with Neil Haig, a visionary artist from Great Britain, uh, an illustrator of many books, a writer, has a couple of books, uh, one that's called Through Ancient Eyes, another called Journeys in the Dream Time. And he's a real interesting guy, and I look forward to talking to him. So we'll have him in just about 20 minutes, okay? And in the meantime, enjoy a little bit more of this. As I said, Universal Drum Appeal. Morgan Natsiga, Rashumba. This song is called Pure Bliss. Sounds good to me. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
Yeah, there you go. Universal drum appeal. More from them throughout the program tonight. All right, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Got a few things to talk about in the news, and then we'll get with it uh, with our guest in about 15 minutes, Neil Haig, a visionary, amazing artist, coming to us live from his studio and home in Great Britain. All right, check this out. Uh, Anybody who's been listening to the program over the last month or two will be interested in this. If you've been listening to Dr. Paul LaViolette, for example, or Jay Widener, or John Major Jenkins. Uh, But listen to this. This is from Space.com. NASA detects totally new mystery explosion nearby. Uh, Astronomers have detected a new type of cosmic outburst that they just can't explain. The event was very close to our galaxy, they said. The eruption might portend to an even brighter event to come, a supernova. It was spotted by NASA's SWIFT telescope and is being monitored by other telescopes around the world as scientists wait to see what will happen. That's encouraging, huh? (laughs) Actually, it is to me. I think it's wonderful. But anyway, another uh, amazing event that just happened in the sky if you had x-ray vision, you would have seen something that was uh, uh, the equivalent of the full moon or something like that that just burst out in the heavens and uh, left everybody stunned. So, again, you can read about this story on the web. Just jump on to MikeHagan.com and click on the News tab. And this and many, many other stories are collected there and posted along with the original links Uh, to the original source articles so you can check them out for yourself and make of them what you will. All right, here's another one. Uh, Explorers discover huge cave and new poison frogs. This is from LiveScience.com. Listen to this. A cave so huge helicopters can fly into it has just been discovered deep in the hills of of, uh, South American jungle paradise. Actually, Cueva del Fantisma, Spanish for Cave of the Ghost, is so vast that two helicopters can comfortably fit into it and land next to one another uh, and near a towering waterfall. It was found on the slopes of the Aparada Tepui in southern Venezuela, one of the most inaccessible and unexplored regions of the world. Now, if you remember, there was an, a similar thing that was just, just discovered in uh, New Guinea, what they called the Garden of Eden. If you remember, I read the story last week, I think, maybe the week before. Anyway, uh, as a bonus, uh, researchers also discovered a new uh, dendropatid frog species. These dendrobatid frogs make up a group of amphibians commonly known as poison dart frogs. This is the second report recently to describe a newfound paradise of sorts containing previously unknown animal species. So... Yeah, in the midst of uh, all of the uh, destruction and the elimination of species, the the earth is abundant, and it's amazing to me. Uh, If you look at the research that's done in the ocean, new species are discovered uh, all the time, some 20,000 just last year. Now, the strange thing is that, you know, they catch these things and kill them in order to identify them. You never even know about them. And... I wonder how many species go undiscovered, I don't know, because they know that just to be viewed or to be 
perceived in the world of human beings is not enough. Human beings apparently, at least in this particular cultural setup that we're in, we have to not only perceive them, but we have to break them down, kill them, and tear them apart into their smallest constituent pieces, and then look at them, and then break them into smaller parts, and somehow this will give us a greater understanding of the frog. But it really doesn't work that way, it turns out, and uh, it's unfortunate for us and for the frog. So, anyway, amazing stuff, and the world is still a mystery, as we mention all the time. And we know very little about our own planet, even though we act like we know a lot. There's mystery all around us, and we're only on the surface of it. Next week, we're going to talk to Richard Souder. We're going to talk a little bit about what's underneath it. And uh, that's only on the surface as well. You know, these underground bases and tunnels and all this thing that Richard is going to talk about. Still just on the very surface of the planet, relatively speaking. You know, to penetrate further down than, I don't know, we'll have to ask Richard, but, uh, you know, a couple, three miles or something like that. I don't know, a few miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, but 100 miles, you know, nothing. If you could penetrate the Earth's skin, which is what it is, what the crust of the Earth is, and you could penetrate in 100 miles, it's still not at all very far, relatively speaking. Diameter of the Earth is, what, 8,000, 9,000 miles, something like this. So, anyway, uh, the Earth is a great mystery, and uh, outside of the Earth is greater mystery. It just goes on and on and on. All right, here's a story about Google. A couple stories, actually, about Google recently. Uh, this one is about Google and Earthlink that are getting together to offer free wireless uh, to San Francisco. This is sort of a follow-up to a story that we did a few weeks ago, but uh, wireless free broadband is very soon to be in and about San Francisco. And uh, I won't actually read uh, much from this to basically just uh, this press release for the deal, but it looks like it's going to go down. And in, in, in the news just today, I think Google is uh, fighting a government request to give a whole bunch of data about uh, search requests that have happened over the last over over some particular period or whatever, but Google's fighting them. And you know, I used to talk smack about Google, but I'm not going to tonight because Yahoo and all these other Yahoos totally caved, had no backbone, and just gave up the data. And Google's the only the only one, uh, to my knowledge so far, that's actually uh, trying to. Uh, stick up for their own rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution of this country. So, anyway, lots going on. More and more in the news. I've got a whole bunch more up on the news site, but we don't have time to cover it now. So, if you're interested in it, um, uh, hop on the website, go over to MikeHagan.com, and click on the news tab, and then you can uh, read some more of these stories, okay? All right, there is one more thing I want to mention really quickly before we uh, take a quick break here and then come back with our guest, Neil Haig, wonderful artist from Great Britain and uh, visionary artist and also does some wonderful illustration for lots and lots of different books. Has written a number of books of his own. I mentioned earlier he's written uh, two that I'm familiar with, Through Ancient Eyes and Journeys in the Dreamtime. And uh, he's a prolific 
artist and uh, a wonderful writer as well. So we'll talk with Neil Hagen in just a few minutes here. But before I do that, I wanted to mention something. I've had a couple of emails uh, that have come over the last two weeks. Since we did all this stuff with eschatology and shamanism, and uh, we had Terrence and Paul LaViolette and Jay Widener, John Major Jenkins, all these guys over the last five weeks or so, um, it sort of rung a bell with some people. And I, I had a few emails that were all, all were sort of about the same tenor, sort of had the same idea, and it was about culture and about why... Um, well, really, why is there reason to have hope? Uh, or, or was there reason to have hope? You know, why was there any reason to believe that culture or people would change? And if they would, you know, for the better. And, and certainly there's no, um, there's no guarantee of that. And I've, uh, I've never claimed that there's a guarantee. I've only claimed that there's a possibility. And as I was thinking about it, I was trying to come up with some examples about uh, how how it might be apparent, you know, from the past. And one of the things that it seems to me is that many people have this idea that human beings, that people in general, are pretty much the same as they've always been in older, previous historical cultures. In other words... Basically, just people just like us, except uh, placed in a different setting. You know, in other words, maybe ancient Greece. You know, but uh, but thought patterns and everything basically the same as ours. But it turns out that that's not the case. And I think that uh, the point that I want to make, you know, is that human beings and culture are much more malleable than we might tend to believe and much more open to large-scale change over short periods of time. And there's a great example in, uh, in the historical literature. There's this gentleman, his name was St. Augustine, and he's considered one of the patriarchs, one of the fathers of the Christian tradition. And back about 1,600 years ago, in the late 4th century, he was considered this amazing holy man. And the way that people uh, were provided evidence to his supposed connection to God, his pipeline to the Almighty, the way that they would uh, prove this to themselves is they would, they would come upon him and open up a book of Scripture. They would open up the Bible, for the most part, and lay it in front of him. And after a few minutes, they would close the book. And then they would ask him questions about it. And he was able to answer them. And they were astonished by it. St. Augustine, it turns out, at the time, was one of the only people who could read silently in Europe. It turns out he actually learned uh, from a guy whose name was Ambrose. Uh, in Rome, at least that's my suspicion. But uh, the point is that St. Augustine was one of the few, few people that could read silently in Europe 1,500 years ago. Everybody thought it was a miracle uh, because up until that point, to read meant to read aloud. And 
These are human beings that are just the same as you and me. This is a cultural phenomenon. I mean, now we all read silently. And if we're lucky, we have somebody that can read to us aloud, and we get to listen to somebody read aloud. Those are, those are the lucky ones of us. But that's one of the only vestiges of evidence that we have from this amazing modality of culture that uh, has been lost only in the last, you know, 75 generations. So culture is malleable. Human beings are malleable. You know, perspective. We, we're going to talk with, uh, with Neil Haig in a moment here. He's an artist. Well, it's amazing to me that the concept of perspective was discovered in the 15th century. It was discovered. I mean, we take perspective as just sort of the way the world is. It's, we take it for granted. It's just uh, something that's inherent in the nature of, of reality. Well, that wasn't the case 500 years ago. Only the most enlightened of artists could draw or paint in perspective. And the average person couldn't even uh, consider that sort of a thought. You know, they had these things that were called perspectographs. <laughs> and it was, it was this, this complicated little machinery that they would, that, that had, uh, you know, uh, descending layers of, uh, of grid work. And they would basically, you know, lay it out and then, and then have to sketch the lines in over it. But anyway, it's, uh, uh, again, the same human beings as, as, as are right here sitting next to you on the bus today. So I just wanted to make that point real quick. Uh, it's possible for change to come really quick. It's possible for people to change really fundamentally. Uh, and it's possible for culture and society to change. It's happened many times in the past, and it will happen again. Nothing lasts forever. Uh, so it's just a matter of, uh, of when and how. Those are the questions. When and how. All right. Okay, look, uh, we will take one more quick break here. We'll play another song from Universal Drum Appeal. And we'll come back with our guest for the evening, Neil Haig, a wonderful artist from the United Kingdom. And we'll be back with him in just a moment. If you want to get familiar, get on the web, go over to www.mikehagan.com. Or you can also go directly to Neil's site at neilhaig, N-E-I-L-H-A-G-U-E.com, neilhaig.com. And we'll have a conversation with Neil in just a few minutes here, okay? So this is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit.
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. My guest tonight, his name is Neil Haig, and he is a visionary artist, he's an illustrator of books, he's a writer of his own books, he is one of the founders of a publisher called Bridge of Love Publications, he has been described, or his work I should say has been described as neo-shamanic by people who have heard him talk or have seen his art. He's had exhibitions all around uh, Europe, in London, and uh, his paintings have appeared on book covers all over the world. He is an amazing artist. He's a great writer. We're fortunate to have him with us tonight, or this morning, I should say, for Neil, but live uh, from his home in Great Britain, and we'll find out exactly where that is. But uh, Neil, welcome, and thanks very much for being with us on Radio Orbit. Uh, good morning. Good evening. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> which one should we go for? <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's still dark here. Whereabouts um, are we? Uh, you know, are we going out from in the uh, in the U.S. anyway, Mike? We are dead center in the middle of the United States, from a little oasis in the middle of the country called Columbia, Missouri. Wow. Yeah, and uh, there's a uh, uh, it's a town of about a hundred thousand people, plus or minus, but there's a large university here and a pretty dynamic and diverse uh, population and lots of interesting people and conversation. And uh, I think Noam Chomsky, as a matter of fact, just spoke here tonight. That was sort of the big event of the week. Uh, but uh, we've, uh, uh, we've got a nice, uh, nice little community here. So. Sounds great. What about you? I'm, Where are you at, Neil? I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from a very, very sleepy uh, village in the, uh, in the heart of Cornwall. Wow. Which is in the southwest of the uh, UK. Right, right. And, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, like I say, it's very quiet. There's, uh, you know, it, it's just about to, um, the sun's about to come up. It, it's a place called St. Column where they have a, apparently they have a, um, a kind of a tradition that goes on every year where they, they, they set, kind of do a, a game of football which runs through the, sh- the streets and, and the shops and the windows all have to be boarded up and stuff. So it's a fascinating little place. I've only been here for, um, for a little while. Uh, originally I'm, I'm from, the uh, the north of the UK, and uh, I settled in London also for for a, um, a period of time, which was uh, where I did a lot of my uh, earlier work, especially the sort of visionary stuff I was stumbling across about ten to twelve years ago. Um, but, a, but before that, I'm I'm, I'm sort of from a, a very very simple mining town huh. in the in the north of the UK in a place called Yorkshire. Yeah, Yorkshire. A county called Yorkshire. Mm. And um, yeah, so uh, that's where I started my uh, my beginning in terms of art and uh, in terms of schooling and and training and all the rest of it. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I think let's begin there. Let's begin at the beginning. 
uh, I had a number of listeners actually that had sent me emails and said, "Hey, uh, you should uh, you should talk to Neil Haig and sent me your your uh, e- or your your website address." And I uh, first of all, I was stunned by the the prolific nature of your art. There's tons of it. There's amazing. There's just in the main gallery alone on your art uh, on your website, there are some 40 or 45 paintings that are all really interesting. And we'll have to talk about some of those as we as we get going but mm-hmm. uh but the the first question was yeah how did uh, how did you get along doing this stuff to begin with? Have you always had an interest in art from from childhood? Yeah, it goes back to a, a very early age. It goes back to you know about ten twelve years old when i when I kind of knew that i I wanted to start um some sort of, some sort of career in in drawing or painting wasn't quite sure which way that would go, but my early fascination was for for book illustration, especially mm. children's books. And one of my uh, one of my sort of um, I, w- I would say inspirations initially was uh, the works of somebody like Raymond Briggs. You know the guy that did the Snowman. Yeah. You know the early children books. I don't know if you've seen them in the, in the US, but they were very um, very well known in the UK. Um, did Fungus the Bogeyman and the Father Christmas stories, which were very very simple children's stories, and and some of the stuff around that as well. Earlier historical pieces like. I'm thinking of somebody like Ernest H. Shepherd and Arthur Rackham and these early children's book mm-hmm. illustrators. And it wasn't until then, I suppose, I got into um, into what you would call um, a high school or up into sort of college and, and that, that sort of area where I where I started looking more more at the historical art. And one mm-hmm. artist that's always been um, a major influence on me is uh, is William Blake. Oh man, you know, for all sorts of reasons and. We could talk about Blake for hours, you know, hours and hours. And we could probably uh, talk, talk about that and nothing else. But uh, he, he was he was a, a visionary artist that kind of st- struck me on different levels, especially from an early age. And also later on in life when I started looking more closely at what he was trying to do and the messages and concepts behind the work. Not not so much the written work, which stands out in its own right, but the actual mm-hmm. the actual the content of the drawing mm. and the the skill behind the drawing. So you could say that he he was a major influence, uh, or, or his work was a major influence. And then and then the the, the rest of the art, I would or the other artists, is the list as long as your arm, because mm. there's been all sorts of artists that have influenced me through college, through university, and um, and and the painters that have kind of touched on. The, the idea of visionary and not so much painting from point of view where we're trying to imitate material appearances. It's more to do with how we see things that don't exist from mm-hmm. a basic, um, don't exist physically as such, but it'll be on the five senses from a basic point of view. So art, um, I would say artists, right from the spectrum, let's go from, say, somebody like Blake 300 years ago, right up to, say, somebody like, um, I don't know, maybe Cecil Collins, mm. which was a, a you know, relatively unknown artist. Mm-hmm. Probably in the U.S. he's, he's known, known, known uh, you know, a little bit about, but he's, he was kind of um, pigeonholed as, as a, a surrealist, and I think he died around the late 80s sometime. And so there was, you know, Blake through to Cecil Collins and everything else in between that t- touches on the um, heart, you know, and the mm-hmm. imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, what what was the nature of William Blake's art? Was he was he drawing or was he painting or what what was what medium was he using? The medium, well, he he was a printmaker initially. I mean, he, he was trained in in print and trained in um, in in engraving and um, and etching. And he he had a 
I mean, artists in that area, they had a very, very good, good training in terms of uh, drawing and in terms of uh, techniques and materials. Mm. He went to the, um, the uh, Royal College, I think it was, uh, which was newly set up at that time, and he, he spent a lot of time in and out of um, what was left of London's Gothic sort of um, climate, especially in and out of Westminster Abbey, drawing, uh, mm. drawing sculptures and things and, and such. And mm. so he, he, was, he was already sort of in, intrigued by the masters, or as he called it, the masters, you know, the artists, the, the, the original artists, the Renaissance fathers, the works of, uh, you know, uh, Michelangelo and, and, and likes. Um, but he he was much more than that because as he as he sort of matured in his own way he 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 started to um put down on paper his visions and and his his visions and his dreams especially but his visions of how the world was to him in terms of how he saw reality mm. and that fascinated me from an early age i would say from from let's say from teenage years you know it fascinated me the idea that this guy was was actually trying to communicate a message that was not necessarily ordinary or from this this sort of um, realm of, of perception. He was talking about things or consciousness or, or let's say, um, entities or whatever you want to call it or thought forms that existed beyond um, the the ordinary. Hmm. And you know, I mean, he once he was once apparently. According to the history, he was once sort of uh, rep- reprimanded by his father for saying that he'd seen uh, the face of God in a tree or something in Lambeth in, in London. You know, he was he was he was very out of the ordinary, very very eccentric, and a, and a genius in my view. And um, so always will be in terms of uh, you know as, for as long as the imagination lives, you know, which which is another subject in its uh, in its own right. Yeah, and I think that's something that we'll definitely talk about tonight. Uh, you know, this thing about Blake. One of the other things about Blake was his connection to nature and his recognition of the uh uh of nature in man and i know that that's a big part of your work as well maybe you could chat about that a little bit yeah uh, the fascinating thing about blake for me mike was that he 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 understood that the world that we look at through his, you know, through his eyes, and it, without any science around at the time, he understood through his own art and his own, his own studies, meditations or contemplations, whatever you want to call them, that, that the world was an illusion, mm. and nature was, in effect, the vehicle for, for connecting with what, what was actually felt as real, mm-hmm. or the heart, in terms of um, how we, how we would move through life and actually exchange with the life cycles um, and, and, and reality around us. So, for example, you know, um, how can I put it? He, he would, you would be looking at the world, but not necessarily seeing it as, as something that would be um, a real object. So nature was real only to the extent that the imagination and how we imagined the nature um, was more powerful to Blake. A couple of quotes that, that are fascinating. I mean, he gives the, he kind of, he's kind of explaining this when he, he's saying... For example, um, he said something like this in one of his books called The Everlasting Gospel. He said, This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through the eye. Hmm. He actually saw nature as some sort of um, vehicle for actually moving beyond 
the the illusions that in, enslave us in terms of um, you know in terms of how we actually get bogged down in what we think is actually real, but in, in most most cases they they're, they're they're what he called and what I call great irrelevances. You know, so it, nature was a vehicle for actually moving through life and moving through reality, rather than to be worshipped as such. For, for Blake, and, and he's not in, on his own in that area. There was quite a few other visionaries from around that time, especially a guy called Emanuel Swedenborg, who was um, a major influence on Blake uh, at one point in his life, and he, he saw life in a similar way. He was kind of a, uh, a mystic stroke, sort of New Age kind of um, religious nonconformist and, and a scientist to boot, you know. Emanuel Swedenborg, and he, he had a sort of society and a following behind him, and, and, I, and I think obviously Blake was influenced a lot by by um, his, uh, his his peers at that time, but he was also going going forward in his own way and um, seeing seeing reality from a very unique point of view. Hmm. It reminds me of uh, you know people talk about a virtual reality. It's well, I mean, before the Internet, it, it was actually the real buzzword, but then the Internet sort of took over. But now virtual reality is sort of coming back on the radar because of the advancements in the technology that's allowing uh, that to become really, really interesting with full immersion type ideas and all this stuff, right? Mm. But culture itself is a virtual reality. I mean, everything's a virtual reality. Our cities and uh, everything that we've built, to me, seems like, a virtual reality in and of themselves, you know. I mean, yeah. they're, they're basically, you know, you mentioned the imagination, and it seems like that's what all these things are. Everything that we look at, are all of our cities, all of the constructs of science, all of these technological things that are allowing you and me to talk right now and me to broadcast radio, etc., they're all just uh, manifestations of, of the imagination to create this virtual world. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's what art, art in its truest sense, and I'm sure we'll talk about sh shamanic stuff in a little while, but art in its truest sense, Mike, I suppose it is about communicating beyond that virtual reality, that program, as you, um, as you put it. And the likes of William Blake and the, the likes, I mean, even such as Van Gogh, actually, mm. you know, a, a hundred so years after Blake, right, right, I mean, right. he, he was considered an outcast. And, and obviously, you know, went through a lot of um, interesting experiences that he had. But he, he was he was more in tune with nature and with the idea of the world being alien in terms of a virtual program or a, a conditioned world than, than than probably any other artist in history I can think of. Anyway, I mean, I'm sure there's other examples out there. Right. But he he was he, he he was so in tune with the idea of Getting back to the, what was real, you know, whether whether it was the um, I, I can I put it with the idea of working life, not not working to to enslave yourself in a system or, or working to um, to have nothing else but work. The the whole idea of the beauty and the joy of watching, I mean, he spent hours watching um, you know native native Dutch people working the land mm. and drawing and painting. Initially, to trying to get some sort of, um, you know, some sort of feel or, or realistic response to what he was actually looking at. But later on, I mean, the, the stuff that was coming out of out, out of his work in later on in life was was much more shamanic than what most people realise. Really? Yeah, totally. I mean, even his last painting, I think it was called um, uh, "Crows Fleeing a Wheatfield" or something like that. It was right at the the end of his life. Well, I think it's probably the last painting he did before he shot himself. Hmm. 
very sad. I mean, very sad ending to a, a great, uh, great artist's life. Uh, he um, it's very shamanic. The, the all for me anyway. The whole idea of the painting and the idea of the crows and the 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 sort of um, exaggerated marks and the craziness of it was almost as though he was enduring some sort of shamanic death. I mean, on a physical level, he 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 was going through hell. You know, in terms of. Um, dealing with his own emotions, uh, which relate to a whole range of things, which we can't, I suppose we couldn't really get into tonight. I mean, there's a whole range of things going on. It'd be a whole documentary in, it, in itself. Um, but um, what I'm trying to say is that it was more shamanic than most people recognize, and, the, and art history, fundamentally, for some reason, seems to sort of, it doesn't seem to include it. I mean, I, I've, I've studied in universities, I've studied in colleges, I've taught in colleges throughout the UK, and... There's a real lack of um, information. Probably you'd have to go to a higher level of study, maybe a master's or something, to get into the idea of shamanism and art mm. having having some sort of um, connection to what we would call Western art history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and you know, Van Gogh's a good example. Yeah, and it seems to me that we talk about shamanism a lot on this program, and it's one of those things that. You know, it's a cookie that was a little bit too big uh, for the Western culture to swallow, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's you know not only in the sciences where the where where the uh, the compounds you know that bring on psychedelic effects and 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 visionary states and these sorts of things were pretty much taken off the menu back in the '60s. But it wasn't just there; it was pretty much across the whole culture, and it, and and. And very few artists have uh, have have delved into there, uh, and and there's a huge connection that hasn't been made. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think um, a, a lot of artists, contemporary artists, are delving in there without them realizing it, mm. and it's a, something to do with the nature of of how we uh, appreciate reality, and it's a it's a big area to get into. Um, shamanism for me, Mike, was was something that it, you, you have to go way back, obviously, to try and understand the concept of um, what the uh, the old idea of creating the shaman was about, I suppose. And 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 from an artistic, and I'm, I'm speaking purely from an artistic point of view. I'm sure there's religious, cultural um, connections that are all interconnected. We can't separate these things. Mm-hmm. But from an artistic point of view, um, there's something to do with the way in which. Shamans had a hold over indigenous society, and I'll give you a good example. Did you ever see um, a film, a recent film called "What the Bleep"? It's a UK film. Yes. Um, it's a kind of a science-based, mm-hmm. um, fascinating movie. Mm-hmm. It was, I think it came in, came out last year. Yeah, it was kind of a sort of uh, touched on on sort of neurology and theology and metaphysical thought and all that sort of thing. And it was great film because there's a scene in it where where this um, the main character in the film is having a dream. And the concepts of metaphysics are coming out through the, and quantum physics are coming out through the film. And there's a bit where they relate to the, um, when the natives first saw Columbus's ships. Mm-hmm. You, I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. this. Yes, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's fascinating because mm-hmm. what, what they actually say in the film and what, what science has been saying, and this relates to shamanism in so many ways, is that the, um, the natives apparently didn't see the ships. Mm-hmm. The ships were actually you know, anchored offshore for, for many days, but they didn't see the ships because it wasn't in their reality. Ships didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Those type of ships didn't exist anyway, the large ones with the mass. I forget the, the name of them. And um, it took a shaman to go out there and actually study the ripples on the water 
until they refocused the eyes, and then they saw the ships. Mm. So the importance of the shaman, I said, what I'm trying to say, I suppose I'm trying to say is that the importance of the shaman was that they, they were pivotal in the indigenous cultures for actually opening up portals in the imagination, in terms of vision and reality. And they almost led the way for new ways of seeing or new ways of thought or thinking or feeling, however way you want to look at it. And what's seriously lacking in today's Western culture is this is this kind of, not worship, but kind of, um, you know, focus on, on not, not, I mean, not modern-day shamans. I mean, as such, I mean, we've had modern-day shamans, and I'm not talking about people and, 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 you know, men and women dressing up as kind of, uh, you know, kind of... Um, in, in a typical shamanic way, I'm talking about um, celebrating, I suppose, the the, the process of, of what a shamanic, artistic, visionary artist uh, w- would actually be there and, and benefit society through their work. And, and it doesn't, it's kind of something that doesn't really exist. I mean, it exists in terms of music. Mm-hmm. Music has a massive influence on society. In terms of art, it's kind of become a, an, an elitist profession. Mm. And it's more to do with um, kind of media celebrity status today more than it ever has been, I suppose. I mean, the cult of the individual and the whole idea of, of, of kind of creating artists that are, that are churning out what is deemed acceptable or not acceptable within the, within the sort of parameters of, of culture and society has nothing to do with shamanic vision whatsoever, mm-hmm. even though some of these artists don't, don't realize quite often that they're actually reflecting back at society what we deserve in terms of um, in terms of depth and knowledge and vision. So, for example, cutting animals up and putting them in formaldehyde, or mm. or I don't know. I mean, you, you know, n- n- nailing uh, you know feces to a canvas. You know, um, I mean, that, that pretty much says a lot about society and what society deserves. It's more it's more or less saying, I'll give you art, I'll give you the art that you deserve. Whereas shamanic art is actually looking for ways out of mm. the virtual reality, the program. It's actually trying to see beyond and uh, above and beyond the five senses initially, but then it's actually doing more than that. It's actually kind of welcoming um, anybody who embarks on that that sort of uh, route through life, uh, a, a kind of a, a quest home, if you, if you know what I mean. It's, mm. uh, Fascinating. So. Wow, you know um, that movie that you mentioned, "What the Bleep," that, that it actually made quite a quite a splash here in the states, and and was controversial too. It got, it got a whole bunch of science people really bent out of shape. Um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, people got and and you know when you get people really bent out of shape that you probably touched a nerve, and it was probably an important film or something. So, uh, yeah, it was one that I saw and I appreciated uh, a lot of uh, of what they were uh, what they were putting across. It was really it was really well done, actually. Well, while we're talking films, actually, uh, one of the other favorite favorite films, I've only seen it a couple of times, it was given to me um, as a gift this Christmas by my fiancé, and um, it, it's a film called, it's called What Dreams May Come, with Robin Williams in it. Huh. And, yeah, it's a, a great film in terms of the some of the concepts we're talking about, and the idea of art being an avenue for, uh, you know, for creating reality and creating reality even beyond death so and the connections between the afterlife and and um and the imagination fascinating film huh um, yeah I re- I re- on a par with the film we've just been talking about so. yeah i remember it actually i didn't see it but i remember when it came out it was i don't know maybe 10 12 years old something like that mm. yeah wonderful film all right well look uh hey let's um let's take a break we're basically at the bottom of the hour we'll come back 
and we'll get back on track and talk a little bit more about your uh, your particular art and uh, uh, some of these paintings that I'm actually looking at right now at the gallery. And the, the axis of evil actually is one that is just a riot that I want to talk to you about right off the bat because <laughs> okay. because that generated a whole series of things if I remember correctly. So yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay, we'll be back in just a minute. Stick around, everybody. My guest is Neil Haig. He's a wonderful artist and writer, speaker from Great Britain, and we'll be back with him in just a moment. Uh, this is Mike, and you can uh, check us both out on the web. Go to www.mikehagen.com. And from there, you can jump right over to Neil's website at neilhague, N-E-I-L-H-A-G-U-E dot com. And there's plenty of things to go look at and read over at Neil's site as well, okay? All right, so do that, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. And in the meantime, a little bit more music from our friend's Universal Drum Appeal. This is called Harare Beat, and this song is available on the web. If you go to the website at mikehagen.com, click on the music page, and you can download this song for free and add it to your collection and send an email over there to Morgan Matsiga, Rashumba, and tell him how much you like it. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right, there you have it. Harare Beats, wonderful stuff. Universal Drum Appeal. And again, that one's available uh, available for download on the web. Just go to MikeHagan.com and click on the Music tab. Thanks for Morgan uh, and the guys for making that available for us, okay? All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Neil Haig. He's on the phone with us live from his home in Great Britain, and we will bring him right back and say hello. Neil, thanks for sticking around. Hi. All right, hey, look, um, let's talk a little bit more about your own work here. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, you've been inspired by people like William Blake and a number of others that you mentioned, but I certainly see some unique uh, things in your work that I don't see in Blake's, for example. Uh, so maybe let's let, let's talk a little bit about your own stuff and where this stuff comes from, and uh, and and where your inspiration comes from, and maybe just a little bit about your own work and how you go about it. Okay. Um, well, in terms of Blake's work, I mean, just going back to that very briefly, I, I suppose it's more to do with two things, which is the my interest in in, in drawing as a um, and drawing from a sort of uh, from a generic point of view, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of not losing the skills, not lo- ever losing the skills of drawing. Drawing is the fundament- most fundamental part of, uh, for me anyway, for the most fundamental part of painting. Mm-hmm. Being able to draw, whether it's through paintings or whatever it is. So uh, Blake w- was an artist; he drew. Mm-hmm. He didn't rely on any other any other sort of form of um, uh, of reproduction apart from printing, but he drew and then he, then he engraved and then he printed. So I like that about him. And as I've said earlier, um, I, I like the subject matter and the content. Um, but just remind me again, what, what, what were we talking about, Mike? The idea of uh, the content of some of my work, um, it, it, it was really um, more or less to do with what's, you know, what's going on in the social political climate, which, mm-hmm. which would affect any artist at any, any time. I mean, if Blake had been around, say, now, um, he, he, I'm pretty much sure that he would have been interested in some of the scientific concepts mm. and the political sort of wranglings and all the rest of it, you know, that relates to culture and society. Um, in those days, it was, it was relig- religion that had a mm. major foothold over society. It still, it still has that, that big part of society in terms of, um, you know, in terms of belief and, and belief systems. And, uh, you know, Blake, Blake was very, um, you know, very, very outspoken um, in, for, his, for his time, um, not so much through his art, but through his writings. Um, but but then you know, uh, if given half the chance, maybe the art would have been you know just as prolific. Mm. So my, what I'm trying to do, what, what I'm what I'm trying to do with my work is, I suppose, try and, and get a kind of a balance between saying something about what what is really going on in the world, but never losing that sort of uh, innocence and that connection to the uh, you know the childlike connection to the uh, the imagination. Right. The work that you've done, I, and for people who would like to reference this stuff, jump on the web and go over to neilhaig.com, and then uh, from the front page there, just a little ways down, you'll see something that says Main Gallery. And from there, you can get over and see a good number, a pretty good represent, a representation of at least some... How, how current is the stuff that we're looking here on that page, Neil? It's uh, it, it goes back to some of it goes back to 2002, 2003. A lot of it, I would say, about half of it is is last year. Mm. All right, uh, so all of it though, very relatively very current recent, last few yeah. years. Yeah, so. and and maybe I mean, there's also another gallery on the site, Gallery Two, which is very small. It's only got about ten pieces on there, and there's a whole range of work that goes. I call it my London period, mm, I see kind it. of ni- ninety four to about 
97, 96, 97, and I was doing a lot of work, mainly oil on canvas, when I had a studio in London. Um, around the time, I made a, made a lot of other connections as well, especially the Bridge of Love connection we are talking about at the beginning. Right, and, um, right, right. And a lot of the work I was doing then was, I mean, it was very, it, it, I, I didn't really kind of realize it at the time, but it, 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 was, it was very um, metaphysical. I had a very interesting experience where I put a show on in Battersea in, in London. I think it was in 1995, and I had a... Uh, you know when you have those lovely coincidences in life? You know, they're not really coincidences. They're kind of... Uh, they're those sort of meetings that you have that's kind of confirmed that there's magic to life. Mm-hmm. You know, those wonderful um, experiences that, that we get. I was having... I had a show anyway, and I put the work up, and the work had only been up on the wall for about, I would say, about an hour. It wasn't even open to the public. And in walked this guy... Um, a lovely man who's kind of become a, not a close friend, but he's, he's become a, a friend over the years. In fact, he visited me just, just last year. Um, he came over to the UK from Tucson, um, Arizona. And he, he was a, a wonderful uh, guy, a photographer, and with connections to the, um, to the Hopi. And uh, we, we had, um, you know, we, we had a, um, a wonderful sort of uh, personal story time um, given to us and the people in the exhibition. I'm going back 10 years now at that time, and a lot of the things he was explaining to me and a lot of things we were talking about, I'd been painting <clears throat> and kind of working out through my art for many years before that, but I'd reached a point where I needed to kind of realize where I was going. So the London period, which is also on the website, was kind of, I, I would say, the almost like the study years for mm. what you see on the main gallery. And the main gallery, a lot of it is very quick, very rapid book illustration, purely because it's a medium that I'm comfortable working in, and also the speed element, and getting things done quickly for, for um, you know, for, for clients, friends, or for projects that I'm, I'm working on. But I also enjoy it, and that relates back to the William Blake thing that we were talking about. Right, right. The fact that I'm more of an illustrator than an artist, in as much as I prefer to work on concepts, small scale, I tend to work on books where, there's a, where, where there has to be a sequential or a narrative-taking form to be able to explain a series hmm. of concepts or a story. So that's the connection between me and Blake, probably more than any, any other um, area, is the fact that we're both fascinated by, if you read, read what he, what, 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 I mean, I'm no way in comparing myself to Blake, but what I'm trying to say is that we're both fascinated by, <laughs> doesn't matter what time frame we're living in, we're both fascinated by the narrative and the sequence, hmm, and also the concepts and the subject matter um, that border on, I would say, I mean, the most common uh, labeling is spirituality, stroke, occultism. Hmm. I mean, Blake's work is very seen as very religious, sort of almost Christian religion uh, or, or kind of semi-pseudo-Christian religion. And he, and he was a Christian. I mean, he was quite, uh, quite, uh, you know, clear about that. But the, the, the lovely thing about William Blake, and I've got to say this to you, it's, the, the lovely thing about him was that he, whenever he was challenged on his beliefs, as an example, he, he said that he his religion was the religion of Jesus, which I found fascinating because everything else that he did was a, a smacked against authority and orthodox, you know, control um, and an orthodox religion. But what he was actually trying to say, without getting his getting hung, basically, because at that time you you could find yourself at um, you know up, uh, down at, at Tamar Bridge, you know, not Tamar Bridge. What am I talking about? The the place in uh, Tyburn in London, and getting getting hung for saying something 300 years ago that. That was basically against, uh, you know, against the king or against the the political social structure at that time. So Blake was very clever at disguising, disguise, uh, disguising his real thoughts and feelings 
behind um you know through his art and, and behind what what he was what he was trying to do so uh um the, the work on the main gallery is very very blakey and in as much that it it, it looks at social political mm. concepts scientific concepts a lot of it was done for um a lot of the work on that main gallery was done recently for a book um by an author called david Icke who is a been a friend of mine for the past 10 years um, and the book I think it was called Infinite Love is the Only Truth I think yeah mm. and I did about 40 illustrations for that 40 or 50 illustrations but this is the interesting thing re- relating to the work as well I suppose was that I I, um, I did the work a lot of it before the I was asked to, asked to get involved in that book hmm. it was already um, done hmm. it was already done yeah because I, I tend to work that way I, I tend yeah. to have my own kind of uh, angle, obviously, on, on how I see reality. So I do a lot of work. I mean, I'm very prolific. I have sketchbooks coming out of my ears. You know? right, right. I'm, I'm, just, it's, I'm full of notes and sketchbooks. I'm doing lots of stuff all the time. And then, obviously, I have connections like the Bridge of Love one. And, uh, and I think David asked me to do about 10, 12 or 10 illustrations on top of the stuff that I'd already done. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that formed the basis of, of the project um, and the content of that main gallery, I suppose, is, is, is kind of linked towards that. Um, there is other work on there, I, if I remember. There is, there's some commission work on a, on a smaller portfolio section, and there's a couple of other bits and bobs as well. But, uh, yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, before, we, uh, before we go any further, we're going to have to take a little bit of a, of, a, of a left turn because my listeners will kill me if I don't ask more about David Icke and what it's like working with him because... Oh, crikey, yeah. You know, certainly yeah. people are familiar with him and his work and... Uh, did you do work on uh, uh, earlier works of David Icke or, or just this recent book? I did four book covers, I think, you know. Mm. I think I did, I think it goes back to about 94, 95. I did, the, I did the cover on The Truth. I painted the cover, did some text illustrations. Right, right, think, and The Truth Will Set You Free. Yeah, I also did I Am Me. I Am Me, I Am Free. Uh-huh, I think uh-huh. all these are on the website. I did, uh-huh. I did Time Loop. I did the cover of Time Loop. Right. And, and And then, obviously, the one I just mentioned. Yeah, we, 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 we met back in 94. 95, 94, um, with a whole group of people that, that were kind of getting together at the time in the UK to, to uh, work on projects that related to the, I, I suppose, related to um, some of the stuff we've been talking about. But more than anything, was just following your heart. You know, I, I, I suppose it was one of those chance meetings I, I was talking about earlier, the sort of magic of life where you connect with somebody and you find sort of some sort of common ground and friendship you know right, so right. Uh, i mean when i say that i mean i you know i don't um i don't <laughs> friends we have on different levels don't we i mean i don't i don't see david very often um I kind of communicate on a uh, on and off throughout the right, uh, right. No, year I'm, you know but we don't see each other very often right, right. but yeah bridge of love um with this whole group of sort of characters that in uh, i think it was about 94 95 that Set about to sort of do, you know, to, to get to get work out and, and do the sort of uh, stuff that we've been talking about, and especially from my point of view, the artwork, the visionary side of things. I was involved in a newsletter for several years. I was involved in uh, magazines and brochures and things, but mainly circled around the, what, what what you would call the new age in the UK. But I was never really part of that scene. I was more kind of interested in the concepts that were always at the cutting edge or always at the edge of um, testing the sort of. The, the parameters of, of, of um, you know, of, of what we would call thought and and, and belief and um, and uh, that sort of thing. So I was always out out there, and I was trained as an illustrator initially. Anyway, and I was doing lots of stuff for, for various newspapers and magazines. But hmm. and then I, I met kind of the, the you know the sort of David and, and a couple of other people, and we, and the Bridge of Love thing just naturally happened. I mean, obviously that's David's 
baby, and it's it's it's, it's, the, it's a huge thing now for um, for that type of area that that David's involved in. I I I, I just I, I do the art for the love of doing the art, and obviously for um, for the, the some of the subject matter and concepts behind um, you know the philosophies behind uh, a lot. Of, I would say ninety percent of the stuff that has come out of um, you know out in David's books, a good, a good proportion of it, I'm I'm, I'm interested in. So. Yeah, I mean. You know, it depends on how much you're willing to take is really, you know, when it comes to David's, David's books, I mean, there's certainly verifiable information in there that, uh, and, and important information in many of his books. The, the biggest secret, secret was one that just, uh, uh, I thought was a profound, uh, book. And, and in hindsight as well, you know, a lot of his stuff, you know, like it or leave it, uh, it has, has borne out pretty well, uh, with, with the benefit of, of history now to look back, you know, um, you know, if you want to take it as far as you want to take it and, and think that the reptilians are behind the whole thing, well, you're welcome, you know, but, uh, certainly, uh, not, uh, uh, not all of his work by any means is, is, is should be poo-pooed at all. I agree with no. you. I agree. Just very briefly on that, very, very briefly, I, I, from a point of view of, of visual art and, and, um, art history, this reptilian thing, yeah, what, what do you it, see in it, that? It, well, it's it's kind of not a new new concept. Um, I you know it's not something that is is uh, it, it, it's not a new concept in terms of visual art. You can go you go all the way back, keep going back, you know, keep keep uncovering and going back through art history, and you'll find as you start going back to the period of the Renaissance, you'll find sort of clandestine sort of um, openings of where there's been imagery relating to that type of concept. Very slight. I mean, one. I once got a text from uh, from somebody in the States regarding uh, Leonardo da Vinci's work, mm -hmm. and there was some there were some drawings of this that had not been totally made public, and they were they were drawings that were part of a, a some, some series called Vegetal or something. I can't remember exactly the title of it, but it was it was they were they were done as part of murals or done part of work for murals uh, for a stately home in Italy, and on on them and from stuff I'd seen, um, there was kind of Kind of hinting at reptilian sort of characters. I mean, there was dragons in other works as well, which is slightly a different subject matter, I suppose. But going way, way back, keep, you know, you go back to the shamanic sort of cave art, and you go back to you know Paleolithic periods. If you go back, you'll find records of um, kind of you know kind of creatures or entities or beings or whatever you want to call them that relate to that concept, and they're not on their own because as you go into that area more in more detail, which I do in in uh, in uh, the uh, journeys in the Dreamtime, in that book, uh, you're looking at other other sort of creatures that are also half human, half animal, half reptile. You know, there's a whole range of uh, deities uh, circling around uh, global mythology that mm. that is being a, a how can I put it a major influence on artists' work. So it's not a new concept. It's actually something that is has always been there. And somebody once asked me, actually, I was given a talk about a year or so ago um, at one of these UFO conferences, and somebody asked me the same question regarding that, regarding my work. And, and I said, you know, it, it's a difficult thing because it, you, you're trying to understand something as a concept, the whole idea of, say, something that is um, maybe... Uh, uh, how can I put it, maybe uh, malevolent or something that isn't quite, um, you know, a sort of uh, nice in terms of um, its attitude to, 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 to life and, and to, to creativity and creation and all that sort of thing. One of the most common images that you find in Gothic art 
and you find through Renaissance art, which mainly Gothic art, is, is, the, is this little idea of gargoyles and things like that. Now, it doesn't mean that these things actually exist physically, but the imagination is something that is, is, is above and beyond the five senses anyway, but by the very fact that they exist in the imagination, from my point of view, and from the likes of, say, visionary artists such as Blake, or even some of the most, more sort of Eastern philosophies, then they exist anyway. Mm. They exist in the imagination. They have, in other words, they have um, a valid um, sort of, um, can I put it, a valid sort of uh, tangible life life form. Hmm. Not necessarily physical, but but in, if you had to put a name to a thought form or a visual image to a thought form, and you, let's say you took your thought form to the worst, it's something that was totally malevolent. What image would you give it? If you go to the other end of the scale in terms of duality, it's something that was absolutely um, benevolent and wonderful. What image mm-hmm. would you give it? Mm. So that's uh, where, where I'm interested has been the more visual image-based side of these concepts rather than the actual trying to prove something physical because f- what is reality anyway? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, reality is about, about as real and as solid as you can you could possibly have it, you know. I mean, look at the film we mentioned. That's exactly right. I mean, right it's, it's not solid, it's not real. So it might, the imagination mm. for somebody like myself as, a, as an artist or, or somebody who paints is more real than the, the real world that we're looking at. And you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be um, walking around on, on all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, you know, hallucinogenics or having influenced by other things, something that I've never really got into, actually, or anything that I've ever looked at. But I know that, you know, when you go back into the ancient world, you've got, you've got that sort of shamanic approach to breaking down the uh, barriers mm-hmm. um, in the mind, to be able to see beyond the veil or see beyond the five senses. So um, the, from that point of view, whatever comes in from beyond the veil, whether it's a reptilian form or a lion-headed humanoid or, a, or something else or a, something that could look like an ET, it's valid because it's part of the creative imagination. It's mm-hmm. part of life. It's part of the dream time. Right. And anything in the imagination, as you state before, is real. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, as real as anything else, as you mentioned. I mean, if you haven't heard, <laughs> right? Uh, reality is, is, as you mentioned, about as solid as, uh, well, not very. Yeah. It's, uh, not, well, it's something like, um, I can't remember the actual facts and figures, but the, you know, the, the tiniest particles of atoms are, are, are floating around in vacuums, aren't they? You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 it's, it's the equivalent of something like a small piece of furniture floating around a cathedral. You know, in terms of an atom, uh, in terms of a nucleus, or more, you know, an electron within an atom. So yeah. there's there's nothing very very solid at all about reality. Mm. And as mm. I was saying to you before, what we what we tend to see is what we see through the brain, or with the brain through the eyes, and the visual cortex at the back of the brain is something that actually um, is something that we um, we see with. And this is the fascinating thing about art and storytelling, and what what is called oral tradition or oral. Oral, I think it's called oral, oral language, oral tradition, mm-hmm. which relates to the indigenous cultures, is that it wasn't really so much anything that was written down. It was something that was either visual, told through stories, but it was a visual language. Right, right. And when when you um, you, you know when you look at the systematically systematic destruction of indigenous cultures, what actually has happened over the uh, over the centuries has been a systematic destruction of that visual language, that oral tradition that ability to communicate uh, visually and see with the imagination or see beyond. or I, I suppose the word, the common word I use and what's used indigenously is the dream time. Hmm. Because it actually, what it's actually saying is that beyond the physical world is infinite possibilities. It's a dream world. 
and that by, can actually be accessed and tapped into. Right. And and by visual language, you mean that by through the storytelling, the 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 imagery has to be built in the mind of the listener, and therefore it's an ima- it's a it's an image based language. It's an image based language that is uh, that that is full of that is teeming with uh, archetypes and symbols and. Um, you know, narratives and sequences that relate to um, a history that that is in that fuzzy area, the one that the universities and the academics like to call prehistory. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a fuzzy area, and nobody there, nobody really wants to go there. It's almost, it's almost just, it, it's like going be, below the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a good example of that, Mike. If, if you look at some of the um, the cave art, Portugal Paleolithic mm-hmm. art, and you look at mm-hmm. some of the wonderful um, cave paintings right across Europe, I mean, I, I'm sure there's there's similar things in the States. I mean, I've not I've not actually had that much experience of it. I've seen glimpses of things, but I know from look, looking at the European Paleolithic art, there, there was there was lion-headed humanoids. I think something that carbon dated to about thirty thousand, thirty-two thousand. BC for what for the purpose of sort of you know dating the damn things mm-hmm, these little mm-hmm. humanoids uh, these little figurines um, are humans with lion heads now some of the oldest art, uh, artwork on earth Amazing. is actually hinting at crazy things right. the right. idea that you know that that you've got guys and or, or creatures walking around in the ancient world that were half lion half human um, not so crazy really when you when you look at the idea of um, of, of the Dreamtime concept and the mm-hmm. idea of reality and, and also how that relates to DNA, you know, to ribonucleonic uh, acid and, and RNA and all those things, all those concepts that are coming out now and um, are coming out through, you know, even through mainstream science. Mm. The whole idea of junk DNA being, being uh, you know, teeming with all these different infinite uh, possibilities and potential. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that if something exists in the imagination, if something exists in a non-physical way, and sooner or later, it has the potential to manifest physically. Right. Or because everything, everything around us has started in a thought form, in some shape or form, right. before it actually becomes a physical object, whether it's a chair or whether it's a, a room that we've just decorated or a painting we've just made. It has to start somewhere, and it tends to start either in the imagination or the non-physical areas of, of reality before, it beca- before we manifest it in physical form. Yeah, you so, know... Let, let me ask you something about that. There's a there's a description of the imagination um, by by one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, authors. But at any rate, the idea is that the imagination really isn't uh, something that's enclosed inside the human body or brain, and that the imagination is sort of a realm or a sphere of of infinite possibility and uh, and potential but it exists outside of the human body so my there's no such thing as my imagination or your imagination or the human imagination it's it's more like a tapping into and 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 when you go there you're able to come back with these different images and so that so that that I and the reason I bring it up is because that sort of uh, sort of jives with what you're talking about because it would say that Everything that you find in the imagination is real somewhere, maybe somewhere so far away that it doesn't even matter to talk about it. But somewhere, uh, of course, if the if the universe is infinite, well, in, in an infinite universe, everything must be real. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 
I see the uh, the old the old idea of this uh, infinite possibility. I mean, the best way I could describe it is the idea that the if you look at the idea of life and, and love being being the most important parts of life of, of reason for being here, I suppose, and the idea of, of creative imagination being connected to life. The, the old reason for life, the old reason for, for living is love mm. at its highest form. And the old idea of creative imagination is, is part of that, that freedom, that, that uh, infinite possibility that connects with life. Mm. If there's an absence of imagination mm. or an absence of, um, of love, then what you have uh, in, in terms of polarity is death. So you have, in my view, a, lo- a lot of um, unimaginative manifestations in the physical world which represent death. They don't represent life. They represent uh, the mundane or the, um, you know, the, the sort of wary treadmill which are leading or marching very gradually or slowly towards death rather than actually you know, um, exalting and, and open-hearted, almost singing for joy, towards life. And the imagination is kind of that river that runs between them, you know, it kind of, it, it connects and meets them and runs, and it runs um, as, as deep and as far as wide as you want it to. Hmm, amazing. You see, you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do, actually, and I love it. All right, well, look, uh, we're at the top of the hour, Neil. Let's uh, take a break here. Yeah. We never talked about the art, did we? The, the gallery. Gosh, you know, it's hard. Well, we got another hour. We'll get there. Don't worry. Okay, great. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, well, let's uh, let's see. We'll take a breather here. We've got uh, about four minutes. So if you want to go grab a cup of coffee or go look at the sunrise or something, Neil, go and take a little break. It's okay. uh, just about one o'clock, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. And we'll be back in just a minute with my guest Neil Haig. This is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit, and this is also Universal Drum Appeal. And this song is called Signoro, a tribute. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Neil. Why, Senor, don't you wish I'm 
There you have it. That's Signoro, and that's Universal Drum Appeal. All right, back at you here. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Neil Haig. He's an amazing artist, a visionary artist, and a writer. We're talking to him live from his home in Great Britain. And uh, before we get back to Neil, let's mention the website really quickly here, www.neilhague.com. And you can get there directly from MikeHagan.com as well. And uh, let's get right back to Neil. Hi, Neil. Thanks for sticking around. Hi there. Hi. All right. So yeah, let's uh, before we get off on another tangent here, let's talk a little bit about the portfolio. The uh, first of all, uh, so people have an idea about the actual size of the paintings and what sort of uh, material you're painting on in this particular case. For example, the Axis of Evil or Bug Man or Shemsu Horror or these sort of things. Okay, well, the, the Axis um, Evil card game is um, it's about sort of um, A3. Uh, it would be something like 200, 297 millimeters by 210 millimeters, something like that. So they're quite, they're, they're, they're small in terms of uh, the way in which a lot of artists reproduce things. A3 is, is a kind of medium, small size. They're done in uh, a drawing ink. I tend to use drawing inks and biros at sketchbook work and then enhance stuff, um, especially the illustration. These days, I enhance it on the Mac. Hmm. So I use specialist software and stuff like that to get to get the right sort of effects and the right text. You know, uh, the some of the other work on that gallery is is purely oil on canvas. I think the Bugman that you you, you just mentioned. Oh, is I love a, that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a small uh, piece that is. A, I think it's part of a collection of uh, visionary heads, and the whole idea of um, behind those was that I was trying to sort of condense and materialize. Something that related loosely to the idea of junk DNA, um, extraterrestrial type concepts, and the idea of visionary heads, which was mm. something that, you know, Blake was fascinated by, and, and, and something that, it, that always interested me. The idea that you could have a uh, creator, a, a character, or create some some form of uh, entity from from a blank canvas, from nothing. Hmm. It's amazing. Some of it. There's one or two pieces. I don't know whether there's, there's one on there called the Watcher. It's uh, yeah. it might it might well be either, might might be part of the main gallery. Um, it, that that was a good example of this because totally created from a blank canvas. Um, whereas the Bugman is more kind of based on a scientific concept and 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 some interesting stories around the uh, the, the time of uh, when uh, <laughs> when when the, the science in the UK discovered biting midges and discovered that when they you know when they were kind of magnified, when you magnify things like um, invertebrates and midges and, and fleas and all those sort of, sort of things, they have a, a, almost a personage, hmm. 
a face, you know. And uh, what fascinated me was was, uh, was a, a painting that William Blake had done called uh, created called I think it was the Ghost of the Ghost of a Flea, hmm. which is in the Tate Britain in, in the UK, and um, that was almost a you know a human uh, humanoid stroke person you know person a, a flea and, and what it would look like from a, on a different dimension as right. such rather than looking at it from a physical point of view so those subjects are kind of loosely around you know that the some of the paintings that you you're talking about yeah this uh the watcher is actually in your london period uh, that's right. section but that's an amazing painting actually and uh yeah it has the same even though it's a completely different painting, it has the same sort of tone as the Bugman, for sure, now that you mention it. Hey, let me ask you something else. Uh, mm -hmm. th there, there's certainly a, a mystical or a shamanic or spiritual aspect to, 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 to a number of these paintings, but then there are the other ones, as you mentioned earlier, that are sort of social commentary. And mm -hmm. this Clones of the System, I love that. I think that's a great, uh, a great piece. And of course, the Axis of Evil card game. I think we'll uh, we mentioned it earlier, but let's talk about uh, about those a little bit, or at least that type of uh, of work. Yeah, well, th th those two pieces were were the the truth behind them was that they, they were they were created. Um, I would say about a year and a half ago, they, they were created in, in response to the social, you know, political climate that we're that we're kind of witnessing. And they, they they relate to the idea that I mean I'm sure m many listeners and many people would relate to this that you know I felt for a long time that all politics all global politics was kind of uh, uh, you know people would be constantly being dealt from a from a marked deck you know there's <laughs> there was kind of no real um, no real concept of, of uh, democracy as such especially when you've got you know huge corporations behind behind the political structures and that the and all of the other industrial complexes that relate to warfare and all the rest of it so and the economics obviously and the you know the economics of um, of of what has major, majorly become destruction rather mm. than, than growth economics in in the world today is about destroying destroying the world it's not about actually giving life to the world no. so um, and once po once politicians buy into that i mean you know once they go go in go into those areas and obviously some of them are, are selected um and nurtured to be in those areas then they uh, they excel very well and the ones that don't toe the line they they lose their career very quickly and and so the card game illustration as a as a kind of political satirical cartoon was more or less saying the concept that this is the concept behind politics. It's a deck, it's a mark deck, it's a house of cards, you know, it's yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, amazing. And uh, the, the now was there a series of those or 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 did a series of of those? I know that something came out similar to that. Was it generated from this particular piece? Yeah, there was a series. There was a series of cartoons that actually stayed in sketchbook form. They never went anywhere. I think I think a couple of little examples were posted on. Uh, I think I think David put put one or two on his site at one point a couple of years ago. And I but think, then uh, I think Jeff Rents. I think Jeff Rents put a couple of them up too. And and. Uh, they Maybe. were they were a riot. I mean, the ones. I mean, if we're th talking about the same thing. I mean, and and I should probably try because we're doing radio. I should uh, I should probably do a quick. Uh, description of what uh, we're looking at, or maybe why don't, why don't, why don't you do that actually, and and uh, try to give the listeners a visual of what of, of what these cards are about. Yeah, you're looking at kind of graphic novel work. You know, the old idea of superheroes, and uh, the old idea of uh, you know uh, uh, you know hit political figures becoming kind of superheroes. So you've right. got you know the idea of say, for example, you know um, you know Captain America. You've got 
Captain Bush or, you know, Blair Wonder, you know, that sort of, you know, the Batman and Robin kind of scenario. And you've got other figures as well, you know. I mean, if you're not just talking, um, talking uh, you know, American uh, Anglo politics, you're talking, you know, the rest of the world, really. You've got, you've got you know, sort of European figures like, um, you know, the French president. You've got you've got other characters in there, like the, uh, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, Bin Laden characters and, the, you know, and all, all that sort of thing that relates to what's going on in the world at the moment. But the concept behind it is a large a large sort of hand um, dealing like like you deal cards on on a on a you know in a in a sort of poker game on yeah. on a table with with chips and stuff actually pointing at the next card you know a kind of sort of demonic sort of mm. devil like hand pointing at the next card saying this is this is where we're going next in the game or this is that this is the prediction of the game mm. there's a couple of other images that relate to it in in the sequence and one of them is the, what I call the puppet master which has got the right. large um, I don't know whether you're looking at that one as well on the web. There's this sort of large um, kind of um, godlike figure of a... Um, it's actually based on something that, I, like I said, I'm inspired by William Blake hugely. And it's actually based on one of his myth- mythological characters very loosely, a, 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 a character called Urizen, which I think is a Greek word for, for something like um, uh, restriction or binding, something mm. like that, and, and control. And the whole idea of the puppet master actually holding both sides of the political spectrum, or, or both sides in any any major um, you know m- major disagreement politically, whether it's war or economics or whatever it is. Yeah. And the the actual body of the character is made up of all these sort of symbols that relate to the you know multinationals and all that sort of stuff. And then the force behind it, the force behind it is the oh, same no, color sequence, the same sort of um, devil demonic sort of looking um, almost reptilian imagery that relates to the hand that is dealing the mm. deck. So a lot of my work is very sequential and narrative and like I say, it unfolds a story and um, and it works very well in that in that sort of context. I mean, th- there is other lovelier work that moves off that subject and relates to the whole idea of, of creation, the idea of coming from oneness and going back to oneness. So you've got lovely sort of yellowy uh, imagery that uh, is full of sort of light and almost looks right, slightly right. scientific but it's based on nature so you've got I think right at the bottom of the, the main gallery you've got a, a, a sort of a sequence there that relates to um, mm. you know oneness or, or whatever you want to call it, yeah, you call it God, or the imagination actually evolving almost like a flower and becoming a, mole- uh, you know, a molecular structure like an atom and it becoming a human form and then the human form is, is actually growing and, and, uh, and, and, and flowing rather like that river I was describing yeah, earlier on yeah. and then out of the head of the human form comes this um, sort of almost um, kind of a winged entity, a kind of a, um, um, I've got it red, it's, it's a red image obviously in, in the painting, but it's, it's kind of slightly reptilian, more demonic, but what I'm trying to say is that out of the, out of the head um, came doubt, which, which, which um, manifested as fear eventually. Hmm. So out of this, this fluid, um, all-knowing, all-oneness came this, this sort of um, entity, which which is symbolic of um, you know symbolic of doubt and fear, and I think I, I some text that I, I was put together to go with this image that went together with an exhibition a couple of years ago. I I, I said something like um, inner space and outer space were the same, and imagination became the force through which all realities came into being. Hmm. What emerged from the centre of infinite oneness became the thinker and creator of all that exists. At this time, this, the world was fluid and dreamlike, and everything flowered from the one. So uh, this this entity came out and um, out of the you know out of the head, symbolic of uh, fear. And um, as the divine took its form, thought created doubt, which caused the infinite to split in two. 
at that point, the predator consciousness was born and its creation was the matrix. And this is the whole concept behind the idea of the matrix and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of uniformity and almost robotic um, indoctrinated belief systems which have become reality on Earth. Hmm. And how those, and how different sides within that, that, that matrix or game or program or virtual reality are played off against each other right. to create even more havoc and even more um, disorder and, uh, and fear that actually feeds and sustains that predator consciousness that broke away from the original, um, original, you know, human form or divine form, as Blake would call it, or, or I think it was the Vitruvian man for Leonardo da Vinci. You know, the mm-hmm. idea of, of oneness um, being separated or split in two, mm-hmm. which is a great theme, Mike, right throughout, you know, all of the Aboriginal cultures. It's something that, it's, it's a very old concept, and it relates to duality and the splitting of the supreme being. And one of the conversations I have with my um, American photographer friend, Dan, over in Tucson, is, is, is imagery and cave art and, and petroglyphs, you know, mm. going back thousands of years, that relate to this concept. Right. And a lot of your American listeners will be familiar with the stories of Kokopelli and the, um, sure, and sure. the, uh, and the god of death, the god of life. And the splitting of the supreme being, and how these are etched into the um, into the rocks right across the four corners, you know, from from um, New Mexico right into Arizona. And, and actually, some of them have been, according to my friend as well, who's done the research and been around around the world photographing things, they're actually found in Europe and as far as uh, wide as Australia. So there was a common language or a common understanding of um, or a myth, uh, one for a better word, of how. Um, the the universe or re- reality was once whole, but then split in two. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my earlier work was relating to that. And a lot of the work running up to what I did for um, David in the Infinite Infinite Love Bug was relating to that. And then I, I tried to piece the two together for an exhibition, which worked fairly well last year, two thousand and four, I think it was. I had an exhibition in London, and I had, and I put a lot of these concepts together as a sequence of images, and um, it was a, like a sort of a, a grand storytelling project, really. Hmm. Well, I tell you what, there's another one that I'm looking here, uh, looking at here that I'd like you to maybe tell me a little bit about. It's my, I think it's my favorite one actually, and it's okay. called uh, the Cather Portal. Oh yeah. And uh, that uh, you spoke of the river earlier. And again, there's a river, at least to me, is the, the the apparent river that runs through it. But it's a beautiful uh, sort of image that's built into this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it, it's it's certainly not uh, uh, it's certainly more along the oneness line than it is along the others. Yeah, I I, I like this painting. It, it's no longer uh, with me. I it, um, it was bought at an exhibition, but it's uh, it's it's a lovely um, it's a lovely one of my favorites actually. It was um, it was painted. Initially, it was painted based on a, a trip I, I made into France. Uh, I spent a lot of time in France uh, during the um, mid-90s into the late 90s. Mm-hmm. A lot of traveling, and I went around the, um, what, what became the, uh, what we now know as the, um, the, the sacred Cathar Sentinel site, you know, where the, um, the Cathar movement, which was a kind of a, I would, uh, almost a maverick um, group of, um, re- a religious cult, if you mm-hmm. that's the best word right, for right, it, I right. suppose. Um, that was a breakaway um, fraction of, uh, of the uh, the original Christian church, and they were heavily persecuted. In fact, mm. genocide yeah, across um, southern, you know all about that, you know, across mm. southern France for actually having for having a belief system that differed slightly from the um, you know from the uh, from the Vatican. But anyway, um, that painting was based on my travels through the south of France, and um, 
I had a couple of uh, amazing dreams that related to interdimensional uh, openings and the whole idea of moving through one dimension into the next. Mm. And uh, one that related to a dog, which, uh, well, you know, it was kind of, uh, I won't go into in great detail, but it was the whole idea of a dog that I'd befriended in a, in a, in a previous life, in my, in my dream, that came to me in this life. And, mm. um, and the image is, is, I suppose, is meant to be an aspect of myself. And I, I mean, that's something I'd like to talk about at some point, is the whole idea of aspects and multidimensionality. And how we, we, it actually relates to the fact that we, we are much more than what we think we are. Um, we exist in different, different sort of parallel universes. And paintings do that for us. Through a painting, you can actually create a whole set of, um, you know, um, a whole set of circumstances and, and, uh, and, and a whole reality or a life um, that is, is, has no bearing on the one that we're actually living. Mm. So um, that image, the Cathar castle at the top of the, uh, the mountain that you're, you're looking at, the White Castle, um, it, it relates to uh, Montsegur, which is in the south of France, which is not far from a place called um, um, Carcassonne and a place called Rennes-le-Chateau, where the famous um, the, the Da Vinci Code is um, kind of connected to, you know, the, the book by Dan Brown. So it, it's a whole sort of, um, it's, a, it's a big, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big project, a big area, and... Uh, you know, I, I actually, the, the, the painting itself is, uh, I'll read you something actually, I've just found it in the book, it's actually featured in, in my book for Ancient Eyes, and this is what, this is what I was saying about it at, at the time, and it, I suppose this sums it up more eloquently. Um, in that image you're referring to, Mike, I show the wanderer, who is also a priest, who has discovered the need to move on and leave dogma behind. The dog is his companion and his connection with his ancestors from the stars. Hmm. The staff or wand he carries is the power that keeps him searching as he passes through one reality and into the next. The fire in the sky is the illumination taking place within his soul as the earth vibrates to a higher frequency. The sun and the mountain represent a portal to the source, his initiation as he ascends the world vortex or the mystical spiral. The white castle is the place this world that he will pass through as he remembers the keys to unlock the vaults of time. And then I go on to say, you will obviously read this image in a different way. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, for some, you know, Mike, it'll be, if you, I mean, for those that are looking at the image, it, it looks like a Jesus figure, you know, with a kind of a, a dog as a companion as he moves through a world of turbulence and, and, and disorder. Um, and the, so the sun is beckoning him. You know, the sun is the sort of um, mm. the key to the portal into the next world. And um, others will just look at it, Mike, and they'll just see a dog and a guy at the foot of a mountain. Right. You know, and um, and some might see wisdom, old age, the hermit, I don't know, a magician. All these images relate to the tarot, don't they? You know, the whole idea right, of... Uh, right, right. So what I'm trying to say is it, it doesn't really matter how we see images, I suppose. It's the effect that they have on us that's important. I mean, everybody sees different things anyway. Well, There's a great quote from Blake, I think. It's something to do with... He wrote a letter to a to a, um, a reverend at the time who, who kind of um, commissioned him to do some work and then then sent it back. And he, and he, he said basically something like, you know... Um, to some people, um, a tree is, is a wonderful, uh, you know, a, a wonderful example of creation, um, and to others, it's just a green thing that stands in the way. Huh. So it depends on your perception, doesn't right, it? Right. And that's what that image relates to, I suppose. Interesting. Yeah, you know, th this idea of art being ambiguous sort of comes to mind. In other words, you you have no idea of knowing how your art will affect me or whoever else's eyes might uh, come upon it, you know? Yeah. And I guess the same thing with writing. You know, you mentioned that that, that when you when you paint, you literally create a virtual world, uh, another reality. The same thing with writing. And I think with reading almost, too, 
you can literally be, be be swept away by it. You know, I, I mean, take the writings of again uh, the, the gentleman we've been talking about a lot tonight, William Blake. I mean, you're just swept away. You know, mm. it's and, true. I mean, it, it's something. It, it's a real problem actually on one level. Uh, it, it's um, the problem is the best word I can think of to describe it in in terms of <laughs> being able to come up. You're coming up with the idea of of let's say you have some form of vision or imaginative. Um, um, ideas, whatever they may be, the the problem you have as an artist or somebody who creates things is actually being able to manifest it in a denser way, mm. you know, in the material world, and um, that's purely because everything that is in the uh, the areas of uh, of imagination is very fluid, very dreamlike, and it's being able to get hold of something and and make it a material object is one mm. of the things that I I've often struggled with because I have so much. That comes to me in terms of um, concepts and image um, uh, and vision, I would say. That it's finding the best route sometimes to be able to make it work and, and make it uh, tangible. So I found that narrative, sequential illustration work it has been the best route. And that's, I suppose that's my professional sort of uh, expertise as well that helps me do that. The paintings, funnily enough, are, um, are much more therapeutic the painting, um, working on a canvas of any kind or any size, is, is more like a journey in itself. Mm. It, it literally is um, a, a sort of letting go of, of, of the material world or even the, the, the environment that you're in. I mean, I've painted sometimes, and I've actually I've gone somewhere, and this has got nothing to do with this necessarily the subject, because sometimes with, with certain areas you don't know exactly what's going to come through to the, through the canvas onto the canvas, I should say. And so you, you, you kind of let things go and you let, you let things just unfold. You have certain images in mind, but you're not quite sure how they're going to turn out. I mean, I could produce hundreds of sketchbook pages and none of them will be exactly based on or look anything like the final image hmm. because there's a certain process of fluidity on of, of letting go and not trying to restrict or control um, the, the image-making process. And that attribute, funnily enough, can be applied to anything in in in, in reality or in society. Hmm, the, the amount of control we have, or that or that we think we have, <laughs> is an illusion. I mean, the whole idea, and this is an interesting subject. I'm slightly digressing here, but it connects to it. Is the whole idea of being controlled, um, you know, and actually being controlled from a, a political point of view, or from a even more clandestine sort of world authority, and the, all that stuff that relates to conspiracies and mm. the conspiracy theories that are out there today, and things that I've had, I've had sort of you know dealings with and done work for, especially David's work. The amount of control that we endure is just a mirror, for, in my view, of the amount of control that we trying to, uh, you know, implement in our own lives mm -hmm. over others. Mm. It's a mirror image. And obviously that's a very simplistic view, but then there's other areas to it as well. But um, what I'm trying to say is that if when we let go and we go with the flow, whether it's writing music or painting a picture or whether it's just doodling, I mean, watch a child, Mike. You know, mm. watch, watch a child paint and draw. They have no um, inhibitions. They, they, they just literally explore in a way that would be beneficial to all of us to, you know, in, in some shape or form when it comes to um, getting on with life, getting on with other people and relationships. Yeah, you know, okay. So art, in, my art in, on one level has been very therapeutic. I suppose that's why art therapy exists on one level, isn't it, as well? Mm. When you look at the, the, the one of my favorite um, writers is a guy, I think, I think, uh, I think his name is, um, is uh, what's his name now? It's gone. 
Sean, uh, Bain, I think his name is, he was an art therapist, an American art therapist, uh-huh. and he wrote a, a book called um, Art as Medicine. And um, a, lot of, a lot of what he said in the book made a, a hell of a lot of sense to me at the time when I was reading it. Because what you're dealing with is, is emotional areas or, or parts of people's lives that are, that are non-physical. In other mm-hmm. words, they're, they're based on emotions initially. They're based on other personas. They're based on their levels of imagination right. and how they've interacted with other people through their life, through their relationships, that need addressing. They need to come out, and the only avenue for them to come out quite often is through being creative. Mm. So art is a great vehicle for healing people. So that's what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that when I paint, I feel very healed sometimes. Huh. Wonderful. I couldn't agree more. I think it's great. And I think we can mm-hmm. ex- extend it, you know, to... to Arts and, and creativity in general, music, dance, poetry, paint, sing, whatever you've got to do. But absolutely, the, but that 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 free out, creative outlet is certainly a, a key to to opening up all all kinds of different uh, opportunities for you know for the individual and for for the society as a whole. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I uh, you know going back to the idea of nature as well, you know, and and using nature as a platform. I think. One of the things that are lacking quite often, especially in modern society, the sort of what I call the the um, it's the entertainment age that we're in. I suppose that is the best way of summing it up. You know, the sort of the levels of mediocrity and the the sort of the the falseness of society, which has no respect for nature whatsoever. Not so much that nature has to be worshipped, but the idea of actually connecting with nature. Mm or connecting with the earth, which is what the indigenous cultures did. They didn't, it wasn't a point of going out and connecting with the earth just for the sake of it. The connection with the earth was done through creativity, whether that was lovemaking, whether it was art, singing, you know, um, you know, whatever it was. And one of the things that I've always been interested in is, is the idea that the heart, or the, um, the love I was talking about earlier, is is felt more strongly when we reconnect with nature. Mm. Not that we we kind of get, a, you know, um, sort of um, dr- drawn into it and then forget the fact that we have other uh, infinite possibilities, but we use nature as a platform. And it's very hard to do that in a, in a fast-growing sort of plastic commercial society where mm. chewing gum and billboards and concrete is much more um, important than than, say, you know, actually watching the sunset you know it's that kind of level of inspiration that i've always been um, interested in and taking time out for and uh, i think it's an important part of society that will actually probably come back more as we realize that the, the civilizations we're building um you know have done nothing but help us to destroy ourselves mm, right you know, you know what i'm trying to say yeah and i i sort of see it now as a matter of fact i mean even in the midst of what seems to be you know, a catastrophic situation that we're in or that we're approaching, uh, there's also this tremendous outbreak of creativity. And I see it uh, in your work. I see it in lots of other people's work, too. And again, not not just uh, uh, from the visual arts, but I think there's just a tremendous amount of creativity that's breaking loose right now. And I'm hoping that, that, that uh, you know, that it's enough to, you know, to, to, to stay the stay the boat, yeah, it, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's it's very true. There is there is a lot of creativity about, and there is a kind of returning to what some artists, um, like Cecil Collins, I was mentioning earlier, the um, the English uh, visionary sort of surrealist. He he was talking about the return to to the um, the new age and the return of the archetypes. 
And what he meant by that was this this um, this language, this oral language I was talking about before, this visual language. And right. um, not that all of a sudden everybody's going to become an artist. It's not what I'm talking about. It's the actually all of a sudden realizing and seeing what's real, huh. or what is more important um, to us than the things that we thought or we were made to believe that were more important to us. So art is it has a sort of, and from my point of view, the, the shamanic side of art. Um, it, it's something that is there for, uh, it, it's a vehicle for actually bursting bubbles or, or actually bursting bubbles in terms of how we see reality. Um, and what I mean by that is actually painting a picture can can offer so many different infinite possibilities and potential through the imagination, not only for the person that's looking at the image, but for, it's more importantly for the person that painted it. Hmm. Um, that we, uh, you know, we we don't get bogged down and lost in all of the uh, the artificial things that are going on around us, you know. And, uh, and uh, the best way, I suppose, of describing it is the the, the you know the the, uh, the idea of um, going back to the stuff I was saying before about the dream time and the, you know, taking time to de- daydream for a start. I mean, I, I read somewhere I've got it in one of my um, reference books. I was a clipping from a newspaper a year ago uh, that scientists had actually, you know, that they did actually. Um, Agreed with the idea that daydreaming was good for us. Huh? About time. But yeah, I mean, yeah, about time. But how many? I mean, how many people in their working life, you know, day to day, nine till five, take time out to daydream? Mm, yeah. And when a kiddie daydreams at school, they get wrapped for it. Yeah. You know, so um, it's something that is important, and it's and it was part of the indigenous cultures. Obviously, it was part of. It was even part of some of the more high Western civilizations until until kind of the industrial revolution kicked in and everything else went went you know went hell bent for you know hell bent on destruction in terms mm-hmm. of how much we consume and buy and all the rest of it. And um, um, so you know, my standpoint, I suppose, has always been that I, I'm, I've always been intrigued and interested in opening that sort of uh, or awakening that ability to have visions and open the the inner eyes as such. So. Uh, um, you know, my my children. You know, they they, they, they as as much time as I spend with them, that they, you know, when we're creative and we're, we're doing doing things and we're painting and all that sort of stuff, I I tend to, you know, I don't tend to impede on what their imagination uh, mm. is saying to them. And I think, you know, a lot of school teachers, a lot of um, a lot of people working in the educational profession, which is something I'm I'm, I'm part of still, you know, and I've I've worked as a college lecturer. They, they they, you know, we need to be aware of this. That be there seems to be needs to be more time for drawing initially. Drawing as a as a um, I don't know what it's like in the states, but in this country we have the three R's. You know, we have the uh, writing, arithmetic, and, and reading. You know, it's, right. it's the whole idea of those things being more important than any, anything else. Well, yeah. actually, drawing, no matter how good or how bad, is just as important as any other form of uh, learning or language or, or um, you know skill we might have. In fact, mm. drawing is probably one of the most important because it, it actually nurtures an ability to imagine. Hmm. And it nurtures an ability to have your own original viewpoint, standpoint on reality, which is something that the authorities that, or the you know the, the the structures in society don't want right. young people as they're growing having their own individual imaginative infinite you know vision, hmm. because they might not vote, <laughs> they might not pay the bills, and they might not they, they may well not um, go along with the the norm and what what is classed as ordinary and orthodox. Right, you've got this other this other image. Uh... On your main, um, on the main gallery there, that's called Clones of the System, and that's exactly what uh, that's exactly what, what they're it, yeah. looking to create and what they're trying to stifle through through the uh, 
through the elimination of the arts. Yeah. Yeah, and and all the uh, yeah, absolutely, and all the other areas. So yeah, um, yeah it's. Uh, I think it's you know it's 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 something that is um, it's important. It ne- needs to be part of um, any educational system that doesn't. Um, uh, respect art, then it, shame on it. I think yeah. there was a film in the States that came out 10 years ago with uh, Richard Dreyfus in it. I think it was called, um, was it Mr. Holland's Opius? Mm, yes, fantastic movie. Yeah, fantastic film. I can't remember uh, everything, you know, in terms of the, the dia- dia- uh, dialogue in the film, but I uh, I just remember something like that any country that um, that um, sees the, art, the arts as expendable is an, is an expendable country, or something yeah. along those lines. And I think I think art is um, is like I say majorly. Um, it always has it has been majorly an elite profession. In fact, I go in, in depth into in journeys in journeys in the dream time in the book, and I, I show an alternative untold history of art, which is based on the fact that it's it's not only we have the shamanic viewpoint in part one and part two of the book. I talk about the shamanic side of things, and then. I look at also the a different angle on the Western civilization's view of art, you know, in terms of Western art, and how it's very how elite it's been, and how it inter, interlocks with all of these sort of uh, secret societies um, that that have um, you know that have kind of had the hand in other areas as well over Interesting. the years. Interesting, you know, it's well, all interconnected. Let, so, um, let me ask you about that then, because you have mentioned this idea of the dream time a few times tonight, and and uh, one of your books there are, there are two at least that I'm familiar with. Through Ancient Eyes, but this other one, uh, a more recent book, I think, is called Journeys in the Dreamtime. This is the one that you're talking about right now. Uh, and for the for the listeners, both of these books are available on the website uh, as well at neilhaig.com. And uh, just to click on the books and you can go see what we're talking about here. But anyway, why, why don't you tell us a little bit, Neil, about, about Journeys? Well, Journeys is a follow-up to Ancient Eyes, basically. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the second part to it. It's a slightly bigger book, and it, it kind of it goes into the uh, the whole idea of the concepts of um, of things that we've been talking about, the idea of illusion and time and, uh, and mythology. Mm. But I, I I use over a hundred illustrations, and uh, I'm I'm kind of looking at the wealth of information that connects art and alchemy. Um, and also DNA to, you know, concepts behind alien civilizations, which are current, constant themes within, within art, um, especially, um, you know, the, uh, the mythological art and religious art and stuff like that. So mm. we look at the Aboriginal dream time and uh, right through to the concepts of the Matrix, the film as well, because obviously art has taken a turn. In, uh, what I mean by that is that what's happened to art is that it has now become um, cinematic, um, if you go back 500 years, say, for example, the unveiling of the Sistine Chapel in Italy would have been on a par with the release of a major blockbuster. Huh, interesting. So it's kind of, you know, our art, which in its elite mode, on one level, has become cinematic. And when you do some research into the... Um, into the sort of structures that produce films, and you do a little bit of research into the uh, the Brotherhood organisations that have created Hollywood and all those areas, and they're, they're kind of connected, and they loosely go go into other areas that relate to occultism and and mythology. And you've got these wonderful avenues for storytelling, which for some reason inspire us all. You know what I was saying in the book is that we're all myth makers. We all mm. have the potential to make our own myths to create his own personal mythology. And that's what the visionaries have done throughout, throughout history. Um, the likes of William Blake had his own personal mythology. One of my favorite artists uh, would be Hieronymus Bosch, hmm. yeah. the, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, the Flemish painter mm-hmm. from the early Renaissance period. 
And when you look at his work, it's teeming with a personal mythology. Some of it relates to secret society symbolism. Some of it relates to indigenous mythology, whether he knew it or not, especially the dream time. And you're looking at bird people and animal humanoid sort of creatures and flying discs and all sorts of things. Right. And, and, and others, other aspects of it relates to the pure torment and the living hell of, of, of aspects of society around the time of the Middle Ages. Mm. So, you know, this book kind of cuts into all of these themes and, and presents, uh, presents this sort of hypothesis that we, you know, that we're, we are kind of looking at an untold aspect of history, but it also looks at the science and the fact that we, we, we are these myth-makers, these multidimensional sort of, um, um, you know, all-possible um, imaginative creatures that, that, can, that can actually unlock and, and produce, uh, you know, whatever, whatever we want based on, on how we, uh, you know, and how we see the world and how we create in the world. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride, to be honest, Mike. It really is mm. a, a kind of a, uh, you know, it, it goes back into the past, into the present, future. It connects a lot of hidden meanings behind the legends associated with characters in, in myths through to superheroes, films. Um, you know, it, it's quite a big, it was a big project, about two or three years to put together. Yeah, like 400 pages, I think. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. It's, some of it will be in color. There's a color section in there. And, um, you know, there's concepts, especially the, the, the concepts in the book especially relate to uh, the some of the things we've been talking about tonight. You know, the whole idea of uh, consciousness and different levels of consciousness hmm. and the shamanic side of things, but also relates to uh, the social, political structures that underpin, uh, you know, how we see the world and um, how we can actually connect back, or connect with, I should say, that's a better word, connect with our infinite potential. So, uh, mm. you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a great book. Obviously, I'm being biased, but it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major feat for me because I'd, the painting takes up a lot of time, the writing takes up even more time. So mm. combining the two has been a, a large project. I have a third one that I'm working on, which is really in its infant stage, which is it's going to be pure art, just just lots of imagery, that kind Great. of, kind of a, a retrospective or a collective, you know, sort of piece of work that looks at the work I've done over the last 15 years. Um, and by the time I finish it, it might be 20 years. You don't, you don't know, you <laughs> yeah. know. So, uh, um, so there is there is other things in the pipeline there. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. It is something else that the... the, the uh the fact that you were able to put a book together in the midst of doing all this art actually is amazing to me. In fact, two of them. So uh, I'm not sure how you did it. I, I, I've actually had this idea for a book in the back of my mind that I've had for a while, and I can't seem to get uh, uh, organized enough or, or I guess, uh, what's the word, probably disciplined enough uh, to actually uh, make it unfold. You know, it takes, mm-hmm. a, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline, I'm sure, of that, so... Oh, for sure. Certain aspects of your life uh, suffer, you know, when you give up time to do uh, to do that sort of thing. And uh, you know, I've kind of had to bend time, I suppose, become a bit of a time traveller in that way um, to yeah. try and achieve it. You know, it's um, yeah, it's not easy, but it's it's something that you you know, when you've got something that you want to do and it, it's a goal that you have or you have uh, you know a passion for something, then uh, mm. my goodness, there's nothing wrong with passion in the world. You know, we need we need more passion to be able to get the things done that we we. That, that bring love and, and creativity and peace in the world, you know. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's important, really. I agree. I couldn't agree more. All right, let me ask you a question, uh, sort of an unrelated question. What do you, how do you see technology fitting into this whole uh, picture, including art uh, and, and the 
you know, social commentary, current affairs idea as you see it. You know, the the uh, the relevance of the internet and these other new communication technologies. Not just the internet, but things like uh, the softwares that are n- that are now allowing people to express themselves through visual art, including film. What do you what do you think of all of the tech? Um, what do I think? It, it, it's, uh, it, it's where we're at. I mean, it's where, it's where we're going and where we're at at the same time, I suppose. I, I have a great, uh, great respect for, for creatives that use technology, uh, whatever that technology may be, to, um, to get, get a hold of the visions that they have or the, the messages or the stories that you want to tell, mm. whether it's in film or whether it's uh, animation. You know, I have the greatest, greatest respect for it. I, I personally, I'm a very traditionalist in terms of what I do. I, I use very minimal software. I, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, I have a graphics background and a publishing background, but I, I tend to always revert back to the uh, the traditional avenues of creativity when it comes to drawing and painting. I, um, you know, I, I, technology is a good thing as long as it doesn't become something that is uh, detrimental to the uh, human spirit. Hmm. I, and well, I keep using a lot of films as an example, um, giving your listeners the impression that I'm a bit of a film buff. I, I actually, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of watch a lot of cinema, and um, because I love it, I love the concepts, especially the concepts that are out there at the moment. And it's, it's one of the themes that I've been talking about, which is that artists tend to produce good, you know, good visionaries or, or people that are interested in visionary work, whether they know it or not, tend to produce work that's ahead of its time. And there's a double, double-edged side to this, which is um, how much of the work that is, you, you're seeing in cinema today is, is, is a kind of recognition of, of what's to come, hmm. i.e., does the technology already exist, and is it hidden away somewhere, and, and, be, you know, and is it, kind of, it going to be used at some future point, or is it purely conjecture, projection of what we would actually like to see happen? Um, so when you see films like iRobot with Will Smith in it... Mm-hmm. You know, you just wonder whether or not all that technology already exists. It can't purely because it's actually being uh, envisioned by somebody, right. and it's been seen on an imaginary level already. Therefore, if it's being seen, it must surely exist. Mm. And what I'm, I'm not getting into, I suppose, what I'm trying not to get into is conspiracy. I mean, I, there's a certain level of this where you could say, yeah, there's a conspiracy, and and it's true, there is there is kind of a hidden technology that the public don't know about, and that it's being used against us in terms of biometric warfare and all those sort of things, and, you know, robot computer technology and all the rest of it, ID cards, chipping of people, and, and all the subjects you can, you can delve into. The point I'm trying to make is that how much of the imagery in films is placed there purposely to affect consciousness or how much of it are we actually creating ourselves mm-hmm. by almost kind of a collective wishful thinking. So, you know, when you, when you get major terrible disasters like tsunamis and etc. around the world, how much of it coincides with the visual imagery on a, on a subconscious level or imaginary level that also manifests in films like The Day After Tomorrow mm-hmm. and uh, Deep Impact. And all. You know, all of these sort of images and these things that we see, that we feed off, must have, effect on the, have, have some sort of effect on the subconscious. So the technology, for me, has to be used sooner or later to, um, to benefit mankind rather than be used against mankind, if you know yeah. what I'm trying to say. So. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's just to the point where it can't be used for anything other. And, well, it will destroy itself. I mean, if, it, if, it, if we don't make the, 
the the turn that you're talking about, and technology continues to be used for destructive purposes, well, it's becoming too powerful and too proliferated uh, to continue. I mean, it's the end of the game eventually if that continues. Yeah, and, and maybe that the end of the game is a good thing because we can always start a new game. Hmm. You know, I've been saying this to people when I've, when I've, you know, given talks and stuff. You know, the, the old idea of, I love the idea of Monopoly, you know, and the old idea of board games. I mean, we stick with a game based on rules and based on wanting to play the game. As soon as you don't want to play the game anymore, then the game's over, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and I think that, that's kind of what, what has, we have the potential on a collective conscious level of, of, you know, the collective human consciousness to actually end the game and start a new game. You know, the virtual reality game that we're playing, is individual on one level, but there is a sort of um, a collective level mm. to that, mm. and uh, the collective level is is almost um, is consensus really. <clears throat> you know, it, it actually is based on what we've been indoctrinated and conditioned to believe is real. And when every now and again, when a visionary comes along and actually says, "But hold on a minute, there's another viewpoint of reality. There's another vision here. There's another." area of my imagination that doesn't fit with the um, with the, the norm or the conditioned view, then they've usually kicked up a bit of a fuss. <laughs> you know, they've usually kind of, there's usually something occurred or something happened to reshape reality, uh, rejig reality. And, um, and I don't, I, I, what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that everybody, everybody that is, uh, you know, is, is uh, is part of this world has the potential to change the world. I think there's a great line in that mm. film, um, Lord, within the book, isn't it? Tolkien's book. Even the smallest person has the potential to change the world. Mm. You know, the idea of the one ring. You know, right. the, the, the little hobbit carrying the ring. Right. You know, uh, it's kind of you know, it's almost a sort of a breath of fresh air to know that that we don't need some sort of religious savior figure or, or some sort of political structure or a, a major major sort of uphaul of the system or a crash of the system or a, a, another water breakout to actually try and change things you can't you don't change things you know you don't fight for peace obviously but you don't change things in that right. way you actually have to change yourself you first change yourself, so, yeah. so um what, what i'm trying to say i suppose is that being creative and having that having that ability to to tap into the imagination and have uh, the vision and the potential to see alternate realities is the first rung on the ladder the rest is uh you know is up to, is, is infinite it's up to us isn't it yeah i guess it is and i and i think that first step uh the key to that is the imagination where 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 we began uh the the show tonight the imagination in fact right now i'm i'm looking at a a paper that you wrote called unlocking the imagination seeing oh, with, yeah. with ancient eyes and there's a wonderful quote uh, at the beginning of that uh, page. And if you'd like to read it, you're more than welcome to. If you don't have it available, I'll read it and you can maybe comment on it. Is it the William Blake quote? No, it's uh, Mikel Dufresne. Oh, yeah, I do have that. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, in, it's in the front. It's actually a chapter in the book for Ancient Eyes. Unlocking the Imagination was uh, one of the chapters. And it kind of, it kind of become a preface for the, it became a preface for the exhibition as well. And, yeah, it, what, what he says is the, the imagination is that which is the least human in man. It wrenches him away from himself and plunges him into ecstasy. It puts him into secret communion with the powers of nature, who speaks to me with my own voice. From himself comes a marvelous stranger called art. Mm. And um, it, it's, it, it is so true. I mean, it, it, it's the... Uh, it's the perfect way of summing up everything we've been talking about, you know, and it, it's it's the mystery, isn't it, Mike? It's kind of like a, um, 
it le- it's leaving something open. It's leaving leaving a question mark open because there's always something else out there. There's always mm. something else to know. Once you think you know it all, then you, you've enslaved yourself. You yeah. enslave you. You know you 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 literally are at the, at the beck and call of the system. Once you once you say that's it, there ain't anything else to learn. And the wonderful thing about art and the imagination is that there is always something else. Mm. There's always there's always more. There's always more potential to do something else. Yeah, no question about it. And the imagination is always new and always unpredictable and always improbable and can always come up with something that you didn't expect. And uh, and, and and in the same way, can also get you out of a jam. Mm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it can get you out of. Um, you know, I mean, the, the idea of. Uh, you know, the idea of exercising the imagination. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm struggling for some of the quotes I was thinking of, but there's an Einstein quote as well about about um, you can't solve problems mm. with the same lack of intelligence that created the problems. Yeah, you know, you have yeah, to yeah. you have to be able to have imagination um, to be able to see it from a different viewpoint. And I, I, and it's it, the beautiful thing about this is it's something that we're all we all have. It's something that we're it's part of what we are. In fact, as Blake would say, it's, it's pretty controversial, but. It, Imagination is God, God within man, or God within human form. It's the divine form. The divine imagination. It's sure. the divine imagination, and it's the it's the thing that it's the it's the eternal aspect of humanity that lives, lives obviously forever, but it also lives in every shape and form. It's everywhere. It 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 doesn't need necessarily to take any form, hmm. but it, we, we choose to give it form based on our creativity. Amazing. All right. So, well, yeah. look, Neil. Believe it or not, we have. Reach the end of our time, at least for tonight or this really? morning for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's light now. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh. Well, the time flies, and I'm 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 always fascinated by how fast time goes when uh, when when I start chatting with uh, with somebody as interesting as yourself. So, so look, uh, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation, as as interesting as I had hoped. So, uh, I appreciate it very much. No problem. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I've I've looked forward to it. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on the show. Absolutely, and we'll uh, we'll stay in touch for sure. I'm very interested in your art, and I think we're going to feature some of your art next uh, next month in March on the website. So we'll uh, try to keep uh, uh, keep some people uh, coming over there to see what you're doing. Wonderful. And, and uh, yeah, let's mention real fast the websites one more time. If you're interested in Neil's work and anything we've been talking about tonight, you can. Uh, go check it out on the web at www.neilhague, N-E-I-L-H-A-G-U-E, neilhague.com. And uh, as I said earlier, he'll be linked up over at our site uh, for uh, uh, for a good while now. So uh, that's over at mikehagen.com. All right, Neil. Well, uh, yeah, great. Been a pleasure. So uh, we'll we'll talk again. I'll I'll be in contact via email. Okay. Okay. Lovely. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks Take again. Care. Have a wonderful okay. day. Bye. Take care. All right, everybody, the wonderful Neil Haig. And if you haven't had a chance to get on the web and look at his work, uh, I advise that, uh, that you do it. It's fascinating and wonderful stuff, and I appreciate him spending the time with us uh, this evening. So, All right, uh, this is Mike. You are listening to Radio Orbit, and we've got about uh, four minutes here to finish the show off. So we'll mention really quickly about the show coming up next week with Richard Souter. And uh, the website for him, if you want to get a leg up, is Richard Souter. No, it's not. It's uh, Souderzone, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com, Souderzone.com. And we'll be talking about underground bases and underground facilities, speaking of reptilians and all this other stuff. There's uh, uh, lots of talk about that in that particular community. 
anyway, all right, this is Mike. Thanks for listening. Come on back next week. In the meantime, check us out on the web at www.mikehagan.com. Uh, go to the archives page, and this particular show, along with everything else we've ever done, are available for streaming and for download. Okay, we'll finish things off with one more piece of music here from Universal Drum Appeal. It's the last one on the CD. It's called Pazi Pano Inandaro. And uh, thanks to Morgan for providing the music. And we'll be back at you next week. And we'll talk to you then.
Dios, 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 Dios,